Welcome back to the Off The X Podcast. I am your host. My name is Cody. Tonight's guest is Kevin Williams. Kevin is a former police officer and current active duty diplomatic security special agent with assignments in New York, Ethiopia, South Africa, Cambodia, and Charleston, South Carolina, where he's currently assigned. Kevin is an excellent storyteller. He's done a He did a great job on the podcast, and I am confident you will enjoy the information that he provided, the stories that he told. Uh, but don't take it from me. Listen in for yourself, and I will catch y'all on the backside. What I want to get to is is obviously a lot of DS agents uh, are uh, aspiring DS agents listen to the podcast. We have a little bit of everyone, but but if you could, man, tell you know, let's talk about your background, and, and I'd like to start with. Uh, you know, what you did before DS and how it prepared you for DS and any anecdotal stories you might have. Uh, and then we'll go through your timeline and take it away. Yeah, it sounds good. Uh, so I, uh, I came on to DS in 2008. Before that, I was a police officer in Concord, North Carolina, Concord Police Department. Uh, so I was a city cop. And, uh, it, you know, it was interesting. I, when I got on as a city cop, 2001, I started in January 2001 or so. And when I came on, uh, I had no, I didn't know who DS was, never heard of them, didn't hear of them for eight years until I actually applied for them seven years or so. And I never had any intention of going federal, really. I, I, I was like, oh, it sounds kind of cool. But when I got on, I was like, I, I just want to help my community. I know I'm not going to make any money. I, I originally, I was, I majored in computer engineering in college. Uh, I was, I thought I was fairly intelligent, despite what the accent kind of comes across as. Uh, I, I was fairly intelligent. I did well in college, uh, and and I actually worked at IBM for a short time, and I hated it. I hated every minute of it at IBM. I hated sitting at a desk. I hated putting on a suit and tie every day. I hated just being in such a structured, tight environment and feeling like I wasn't really doing anything to help anybody else other than my paycheck. It was just, for me, it was terrible. And then I remember I just kind of had this moment when I was in college where I was like, gosh, uh, you know, computer engineering, there's a lot of money in it. Computers are the way to future, but man, I'm just not going to be happy. I'm going to be miserable if I stick out this career. And, uh, it was like one day in college, I just said, yeah, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to go back. I'm going to be a police officer. And, uh, so I, I, uh, I changed my major. I went from computer engineering to criminal justice in my junior year. So I lost a bunch of credits. I changed schools. I transferred from NC State down to UNC Charlotte because they had a better criminal justice program. I started working jobs instead of like being in a video store. I started working jobs as a security guard and things like that. I just kind of shifted my whole perspective into law enforcement. And thank God I did because I realized later that like it, this was definitely my calling. Like law enforcement was the way to go for me. So I finally got on the police department in 2001, worked as a street cop. Worked mostly night shift most of my career. Loved every minute of it. Loved the camaraderie. Loved helping people. Um, things were different. You know, things were different for cops then. I really feel a lot of uh, compassion towards police now. And, and I don't think I could do it now, honestly, because back then, police, they were more respected, it felt like. Uh, the community loved the police, especially after 9-11 happened. It was just like people were giving free lunches and everywhere you go, people, the kids would come up and give you letters and say, thank you for what you do. And it was, it was just a totally different environment and things have changed. And, and you know, the police haven't, some police haven't done anything to help, done anything to help that. It's 
it's you know a, a result of some very bad decisions made by some police officers who have who have just resulted in this animosity towards police. And obviously, I mean, you I'm sure you agree. It, it's not indicative of the police as a whole. It's it's bad apples. And it, it's always the case. It's always bad apples that make a, a group look bad. But it's the reality of life, especially now in the, in the age of the Internet. So, you know, I'm, I started as a cop. I was making twenty four thousand a year, man. I was like, Jesus. it was poverty level. You know, in North Carolina, even in, in North Carolina, police don't have bargaining rights. They don't they, they make they make squat, you know, in some states, police make fairly good money. But there we were we weren't making anything. And I didn't care. I couldn't afford a house. Uh, you know, I was living in an apartment with another cop. We uh, we didn't care because we really enjoyed the job and we enjoyed helping the helping the, uh, the community and, and just feeling like you were doing something. Every time you lock somebody up, you were doing something cool. I did it for seven years. I worked 21 NASCAR races, which were always entertaining. You know, you get 150,000 drunk people in one place and it's just, uh, it's, I don't know if, I don't know if a good adjective to describe it is, but it's interesting. Uh, it's, it's never a dull moment at a NASCAR race. Uh, was a field training officer for a while, started like developing younger officers as they came in and really enjoyed that, had no ambition to leave. And then suddenly I just got that itch. I just hit that same moment that I hit in college at some point And I went, man, I don't know if I want to be a street cop my whole life. I don't know if I want to stay at the police department. Maybe it is time to look at federal agencies. And I was friends with a secret service agent who would come and work a lot of cases with us at the time. He would work big fraud cases that we kind of kicked off in this uh, in this one precinct I worked in at, at, a, at a major mall. We would catch these big uh, check fraud and credit card fraud cases, and he would come in and help, which a lot of folks don't know. Secret Service works credit card and, and check fraud as well as some other you know uh, crimes that you don't think about when you think of Secret Service. And my buddy with the service, super nice guy, uh, one day he was like, man, you're, you're too smart for this. You need to, you need to come federal. You're going to make a lot more money. You've got the degree. You've got the prerequisites. Come over to secret service. And I was like, ah, tell me about the job. And he started telling me about it. And the more he told me about it, I was like, man, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go to like Des Moines, Iowa and be a secret service agent there for 10 years. And, and he was like, well, dude, what do you want to do? What, tell me what you want to do with your life. And I said, I want to travel. I want to see the world, but I also want to be a cop. And he said, bro, you got to go to diplomatic security. Then it's the only place that you can go and do that. And I went, who? Diplomatic what? And he said, diplomatic security. Look them up. I looked them up. And it, it, was, it, was, it was fate. It was one of those crazy things. I looked it up. This was December, I believe. And I read about DS. I was like, man, this sounds really cool. The day I looked it up was the day that they'd opened the, one of the hiring windows for, for DS. And it was like, when I looked it up, I went to the official website and I saw the, the hiring was open. And just on a whim, I said, eh, you know what? I'll put in for it put all my stuff together, got it in by the end of the application window. It was a lot of stuff to put together in a week. Got it in by the end of the application window, got invited for the BECs, went and did the BECs and thought like it, when it was over, I was like, I'm, I'll try again next time. There's no way I passed this thing. And somehow I passed it, got on the register. And then next thing you know, I'm, I'm headed to Georgia to, uh, to do, you know, CITP and, and then the add on with, with DS and, uh, and never look back from then. Yeah. Well, that's a story of hope for uh, <laughs> for for DSW supply. You know, the the general rule. It took me three tries uh, to get yeah. in, and and I tell people, say, hey, if if you're going to apply for this job, sometimes I'll post. I'll, I'll always post at least the last few years when a vacancy announcement comes out. I'll post that a vacancy announcement's open, 
And then people will ping me and say, Hey man, I just heard of this. You think I should apply? And I thought, man, yes, the answer is yes. Go for it. You can learn a lot from applying, but I help people prepare or at least communicate to them and like what you need to look out for mm-hmm. you know, months in advance. And I, and I tell people you need to prepare months in advance, get all your documents together, watch, you know, and for the first portion, you know, you don't need to know so much about foreign affairs and what's going on in the world right now, but there is there, there's certainly an element to have a kind of a comprehensive understanding of the world and how the government works and, and, you know, uh, a, a basic general knowledge of, to, uh, to get past that first test. But yeah, so first try you made it. So what, what year was that? Lucky. That was, uh, so I, I passed the BEX in 2007, uh, because then I, I got, uh, I went, actually started training in 2008. I came on with DS in 08. So I passed the BEX. I want to say it was, I can't remember the month. I actually, I believe it was May, maybe around April or May of 2007, I passed the BEX. And I think I took the test back in December or so. And then uh, once I passed the BEX, and it's funny you mentioned like a lot of my friends who are way smarter than I am and and had a lot more experience than I had coming into this job. I mean, I've got friends in this job who are, you know, SEAL team commanders and and just crazy, you know, uh, great resumes. And it took them two or three tries to pass. And I wish I could say it's, there's a, like, it's because I was better than him. No way. It was, I got lucky. I, it was either, it was just a combination. I was super relaxed when I went in and, and I, I learned, I'd studied about DS obviously before I went and did the BEX and I kind of knew what they were looking for and things like that. But the main thing I tell people about the BEX is, and, and the one thing I don't have a lot of problems with is you've got to be, you can't be cocky. You can't go into the BEX and be cocky about your career and about the things you've done. You've got to be realistic but you've also you can't be afraid to uh, tell the story of what you've done and tell it in a way that is interesting and gets your point across as to why you would be a good DS agent, why you would be a good leader, even if you've only been a in the Boy Scouts coming up to your begs. Take that take that example and and you just have to tell it in a way that gets the point across that hey, I was a Boy Scout but I was the best damn boy scout we had in our troop. And I did this and I led this and I ran this and I was, you know, I took control of this. And when there was this conflict, I handled it. It's all about how you articulate your experiences more than it is your experiences. And uh, I try to get that across when people ask me for advice on doing the backs. And I'm like, look, I can't tell you what any of the questions are. One, we're not allowed to. And two, they change it all the time. But, and I've, and I've given backs since then. I've been on the other side of that board of exam. And I realized it's very structured. It's very it's it's all lawyer driven. You know, you have to ask the same questions to everybody and you do the same uh, you do the same routine with everybody. But the way people answer these questions, you'd be surprised how many people we get who have impeccable backgrounds and unbelievable leadership qualities. And they just can't articulate it in the backs. They, they just can't get it out, whether it be, you know, hubris or or just uh, not really good at, at expressing their emotions or their experiences and things. And it hurts them. It hurts them in the backs because you have a very limited amount of time to prove to these two or three people that you are the best person for this job. Uh, and it's tough to get across. It's, it's really hard. And a lot of people have to try two or three times and there's no shame in it. Some of the best agents I know you included took several tries to get it. I think I just got lucky more than anything. Well, when you're a good communicator, uh, I think for me, I, I had the, um, I, I was, first time was 2005, so I was only a couple of years out of Marine Corps, and I was very succinct in how I, how I spoke. I do this, I do this, I do this, so I was very, I'd get there, use a lot of brevity in how I'd speak, 
and, and I do that a lot with writing and I had to get out of that. And, but, but the advice you gave about, uh, you said, uh, don't be cocky, but don't over embellish, but don't, uh, if there is a term under embellish, find that balance in between. And, you know, effective communication is part of it. It's part of the job. It's one of the most important parts of the job, particularly when you go out to a, a post, and you got to sell your program, you know, sell your, your security program or, or, or convince a U.S. attorney to, to take a case, you know, effective communication is key. And, and that's something they look at. Um, but I, I would, I would also say, you know, I get a lot of people that, 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 uh, that, that are right and say, well, you know, I wasn't a cop and I wasn't military. What are my chances? And I think you've probably heard the same as I have, uh, you know, it's like a third military, third cops and a third of, of just about everyone else. And I don't know, you know, it's not exact, but, but, uh, and, and there's a lot of them that make great agents from every, every sector, uh, you know, out there. So, uh, I mean, you've worked with them, you've worked with them all. You know that we've, we've got agents who are former lawyers, who are incredible agents, former teachers, dancers, yeah, you name it. Pretty much every profession we have in DS, former pro athletes have come over to DS. Uh, and then it doesn't mean that they're better or worse at the job. It means that they come in with a different perspective. And I think what makes DS stronger than a lot of other federal agencies is the fact that we embrace that that uh, diversity in our workforce. We embrace the fact that we have so many different backgrounds that if we put a couple of DS agents in a room and give them a problem, Man, we're going to solve it. There's no doubt that we're going to come up with some kind of unique solution to it because somebody in that room has either come across a problem before or they're going to come up with some wild idea that actually may work. Uh, and I think it really bodes well for DS's future as well because we, we continue to stay on that path of one-third police, one-third military. And it's not an intentional thing. I don't. DS doesn't go out and intentionally recruit that way. It's just the way the cards kind of fall, you know? Yeah, and I think with DS too, you have you you have the opportunity, no matter what sector you came from, to utilize that skill set. Whether you're at, uh, you know, we talk about the more traditional roles for DS, where you're at an embassy as a regional security officer, or you're at the field officer, you're doing protection. But you also have we have them in the what we have them in the House of Representatives, right? We have a li- liaison to the three letter organizations. We have we have people at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Like there's a lot of places where you could use a skill set, whether it's you're a, a, a librarian or a Navy SEAL, uh, I feel like there's a broad, there's broad opportunities within DS to kind of, to use those skill sets. Um, but to your point, effective communication is key in all of those. So. Yeah. And, and going back to the cocky thing, my, my whole thing is like, you, you, you can be confident without being cocky and there's a big difference. And, and we see it all the time. And, and a lot of time you see it with the, with the, we know with the tier one operators, these guys, you know that these guys are badass and they can do pretty much anything you ask them to do. But, they don't come across, usually the, the best guys never come across as cocky. They're not the guys you see in the bar bragging and, and being, you know, being putting their chest out. It's the guy sitting in the corner quietly sipping their drink and, and watching what's going on around them. Those are the guys that really tend to be uh, the ones that you want on your team. Those are the ones that you know they're confident. They know what they're doing. They, they have the skill set and they're not using bravado to, uh, you know, to hide behind. Yes, sir. What I would be sack where you. I was BSAC 100. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know. We were, so I was two classes behind you. I was 102. The infamous 100. We, we had a little bit of a reputation. I think uh, we were one of the first classes of 48. I want to say we were the second class of 48 to go through where we had actually 48 agents versus 24. And they mm-hmm. split us at Pletsy into two classes of 24. And it created this kind of like, a versus B mentality, like which which side is better, and it was all friendly competition and everything. But 
uh, our class carried a bit of a reputation for a while for being, we had a lot of former police. We were heavy on former police, former military. And uh, I think our class carried a bit of a reputation for a while for being a little um, hard to get along with for the instructors and everything. It wasn't that we gave them a hard time, but we definitely, uh, we definitely challenged some of the instructors and, 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 uh, and made things a little bit hairy for them. But uh, shout out to my BSAC 100 classmates. However many of us are left. I think, Last time we checked, we're well under out of the 48 that started and in, in, um, we had already lost five or six by the time we finished BSAC through either jumping to other agencies or um, or just, you know, attrition in the program. I think we we ended with like maybe 40 or so. I, I bet we're probably down to less than 25 now, I would guess. Uh, some of them have gone on to, you know, to higher ranks in the DS and. Some of them, like myself, are in that in that stuck in that uh, FS three slash PS thirteen uh, hole for the rest of their careers, which is fine as well. That's it's it's part of the game, you know. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this: then. Why, you know, people are leaving, and mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I'll often talk about, um, or, or people have asked why I left, and I told you right before this, I had personal reasons to leave that that couldn't be overcome. Most of them can be, but uh, you know. Why, why do other people? Why do other people leave? What, do you, what are some of your opinions, and why are some of your friends that have left? What are the, what are some of the reasons they leave for? I think you know, DS as great as this agency is, and it is the best federal law enforcement agency out there. And I tell people all the time, I think there's no better federal agency you're going to find in DS. The things we get to do, the things we get to see, the places we get to go, you can't beat it. You you can't touch it. The we always have the mentality of the grass being greener every time. Uh, a prom- every time a promotion cycle comes up and you don't get promoted, people get a little bit more disgruntled. Every time a bidding cycle comes up and you don't get Paris or you don't get Brussels, you don't get one of these really garden spots, which I never really cared for, but some people that's like their, you know, that's what they want. Uh, they don't get that and they end up going to a post they don't like or they don't think they're going to like, then they, you know, their, their animosity may come up a little more during that period. And then they see their buddies in HSI that are staying put in a nice city and making a family and they're not having to pick up and move every two years. As great as DS is, it's not for everybody. It's definitely not the career for everybody. And I think sometimes it takes folks a couple years to realize that they, they get to a point where they're like, you know what? I'm not cut out for picking up my stuff, saying goodbye to all my friends and moving to another city every two to three years. It's just not what I enjoy. I want to have roots. I want to have uh, long-term friendships in one place. Not to say we don't, I have friends that I've, I've had for my entire life and I still have friends. Social media has made it much easier, but some folks just realize, Hey man, this isn't the life for me being a transient, moving around every two to three years, uh, learning a new job every two to three years, learning a new language every couple of years. And, and no fault. It's no fault of their own. It's not that they're any better or worse. They just, you don't fit. Sometimes you find out that you're kind of a, a square peg trying to fit into a round hole and it's not going to work and it's, it's time to move on to something else. Most of my friends who have left have left for very, very good reasons. You know, it's not, and, and the reasons are never DS sucks and, and this is the worst job ever. The reasons are always, man, I got to look out for my family. I got a family issue that I got to take care of, or my parents are, you know, really sick and I just can't, I just don't want to be in a war zone when my parents are, are fighting a disease or something. And, more power to them. It's a hard decision to jump out of this agency, just as hard as it is to jump into it. 
And if some if somebody decides, hey, I got to go, I've never held that against any of my friends who have jumped out of this. It, it is what it is. You know, we, we, we just can't uh, we can't dictate our circumstances. And sometimes our circumstances dictate what we got to do next. Yeah, well said. A good, a good, honest assessment, and and people when they're getting into it need to realize that. There, I mean, it's not for everyone. There's, there's, it's a fun job. Uh, there's a lot of cool things you get to do, but it can be tough on family life, you know, and and and, and it can be tough on on an individual, uh, you know, depending on on where you're assigned. And and uh, DS has its requirements as well. State Department has its requirements when when people have to go overseas, and you have to, if you want to promote and do things, you have to kind of meet these certain uh, or check these boxes. So what you saying? Um, so, uh, but you know, still, like I said, it's a blast for an organization. I've met more good guys and girls in DS than I have in any other environment. Um, and, and, and by far the majority of people I've met are, are just, are, are really good people that I've stayed in touch with, you know, and, and, and a lot of it's cause you have the same kind of goals and aspirations and ambitions and interests, you, you know, you're, you're looking to live overseas, you're looking to be in law enforcement. Um, and, and, um, you know, so it's, it's a great organization, but it has, it's, you know, it, 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 you have to, it has to be the right fit for you, for you and your family and people need to make that assessment. And and sometimes you don't realize it. Sometimes you get into this job and you're like, this is the perfect job for me. And life throws curveballs at you. You, you have a child, maybe the child has special needs, medical needs, and you know, children and your family are way more important than any job. And I tell people that all the time. And then your circumstances change. You might've come into this job as a single guy, or a, or a newlywed couple, and you're like, this is the greatest thing ever, and I'm going to spend 20 years traveling the world, and then boom, life throws you a curveball. You have a child who has some special medical needs. Suddenly, your options are very, very limited when it comes to overseas travel. You you get certain medical restrictions placed on your family, and you find yourself in either Washington, D.C., or very limited number of posts overseas for a very short time before you're coming back to Washington, D.C., and some folks go, Hey, if I'm going to just spend my career in Washington, I'm going to jump over to another job and, and something I don't have to go and leave my family for a year. Uh, you know, maybe do a, a high threat post or something for a year and come back. I can just stay with my family the whole time. And nobody in this job has ever faulted someone for leaving because of their family. I don't think that that's, it's not a, and it's not the appropriate thing to do. And, and, uh, I don't see it. It's a very supportive crew here. Uh, and, and folks have even jumped and left and then come back later and they're welcome back with open arms where it's not this weird fraternity where we're like, well, once you, once you're out, you're out for good. You know, we don't have that mentality here. Yeah. And the support, you know, for someone that left, uh, the support from current agents, uh, uh, both friends and people I haven't met and, 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 and former DS agents, the, the, the camaraderie still exists. We look out for each other, uh, when you're looking for corporate jobs, you name it, you know, you see a DS agent, you try your best to, to get them an interview and, 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 and potentially hire them. I know I was hired on my first gig out of DS by a former DS agent because he knew the background, he knew my skill set. I didn't know him previously, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I had heard of him, he'd heard of me and, and, it, and it worked, it worked out. But yeah, I think the, the, uh, the connection, the networking, the, the, the relationship building uh, is obviously all important, but, but we tend to look out for each other even after the fact. Um, so you were in for you in New York field office, uh, you know, alumni, the, mm-hmm. you know, you guys are very uh, passionate about that field office. It's, it is pretty <laughs> yeah. cool. I, I, uh, you know, I was, I was out of Houston um, and I enjoyed going up to New York and 
Whether you know it or not, you and another guy, his name starts with a J, you happen to know him very well, <laughs> yeah. are, 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 are legends to to outsiders like myself that come out there because you are airport PL, air to right. airport uh, protective liaison. And so we would see you often, whether it be for UNGA, and, I, and I'd done a, a couple while you were airport PL, or uh, just regular details, and I did a few of those as well. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your time in, in NIFO. Sure. I mean, uh, you mentioned our, our colleague, uh, J3, I'll call him. Um, he, uh, he and I were airport PL for almost two years there. So the airport PL job is an interesting gig. Uh, when I, you know, when I went up to NIFO, I initially jumped onto a CRIM team, uh, and a very specialized CRIM program that was, that was run by a, uh, a well-known, uh, supervisor who I still admire to this day. She, she was, she's kind of a pioneer, especially with female agents in DS and uh, is essentially a crim genius. I mean, just knows crim very well, criminal investigations, uh, knows everybody that has anything to do with crim and knows almost everybody in DS. It's, it's kind of a legend among, among DS circles. And I began working for her and uh, loved it, loved the crim program. But I went to her honestly after like two months and I said, listen, I really love working for you. I love what I'm doing, but I did crim for seven years as a cop and I'm real, I'm just looking for a change. And this airport job is open. It sounds like a lot of fun. It's protection work. It's, it's protective liaison. It's liaising with a lot of foreign governments. Let me, can I try that? And to her credit, even though her program was extremely busy and it was going to cost her a person, she said, if that's what you want to do, I'll put in a recommendation. And she put in a recommendation for me and I got the job and I jumped over and started working with, with Mr. J3, who is, who is still one of my dear friends and, and one of the greatest one of the greatest dudes walking the earth, in my opinion. And uh, he and I had an absolute blast working the airports for for roughly two years. And I'll say this. It was some of the hardest work I've done in DS. It was long hours. I worked a lot of overtime. I worked a lot of weekends, a lot of nights. Um, but it was super interesting. It was never a dull moment, especially working with him. We just had such a good bond. We had good supervisors out at the airport. We had good coworkers. And uh, our job out there essentially as an airport PL agent is kind of twofold. One is you're in charge of visiting foreign dignitaries who fly in and out of the New York's uh, area airports that aren't getting protection from diplomatic security. So these are foreign ministers of, you know, you, you go to foreign countries and you have ministers of everything. And we used to always joke around like some countries have ministers of goats and cheeses, you know, that would be a joke we would make. There's always a, there's a minister of everything from a lot of different countries. And most of these ministers who travel to New York don't have enough of a, a notoriety level or a threat level to warrant getting a protection detail from diplomatic security. They essentially come in on their own. And a lot of times they bring their own armed security with them from other countries. So a lot of our job was working liaison between the airport personnel, the local city police, uh, anywhere that these folks are going to come in and, and, uh, and essentially have security with them, we would let everybody know, hey, these folks are coming in. Let's help get them through the system without any incidents, because it would be very embarrassing if a minister from a foreign country, even if it's a, a minor, uh, I guess I use the term minor country, but even if it's a country that most Americans haven't heard of, if a minister were to get um, harassed, you know, by, in their terms, if they were to get stopped by TSA and searched and embarrassed, it would be a, it would really look bad for the U.S. government. It would kind of leave a, uh, a sour taste in the mouth of the diplomat and they would file a complaint and the U.S. government would look bad. So our job was to liaison with a lot of different agencies and make sure 
these diplomats can come and go out of the airport with their security details without having without running any excess problems you know uh being embarrassed or or having obviously not harm or anything but you know making sure no harm or embarrassment came to them the second part of the job was when you came in with the ds details anybody who flew in and out and were getting ds details we would help the agents our ds agents uh get the dignitaries from the plane to the cars and off the airport property and then when they left from the cars to the plane and then out in the air and it sounds simple like it sounds simple like you're just walking from a car to a plane but what you forget is from the time the, the detail leaves new york city to the time they get on the airplane and fly out they cross through like what four or so police jurisdictions if you, you've got new york city police you've got New York State Police, in some cases, depending on the road they take. You've got Port Authority, depending on which bridge or tunnel they take. You've got Port Authority again when they come onto the airport. Uh, so there's several jurisdictions that you have to make sure everything is smoothed out with. But then you got to deal with TSA, getting them through TSA. How do you get them through security? How do you get them uh, into their lounge and in and, and a place where they're not in public view, sort of being harassed by, you know, uh, passerbys who see them and recognize them as someone famous? So there's a lot of moving parts that go into just the airport part of this thing, which is why they have the PL agents to kind of take that. So you as a if you come in and you're, say, an, an AIC, an agent in charge of a foreign dignitary, you know that, hey, when we get to the airport, there's going to be an agent there who not only has everything smoothed out and ready to go for me as soon as I get out of the car, but I don't even have to worry about where we're going or what we're doing. He's going to take me everywhere. He's going to get us in our lounge. He's going to get us onto the airplane. And once the door closes, then we're done with our detail. And uh, it was, man, it was a lot of work, but it was so much fun. It was, it, I learned a lot about dealing with other countries. You're frequently talking to protocol officers from other countries. This is something that an entry-level DS agent, you would never expect this. You know, I didn't think that when I got into this job, my first year on the job, I would be calling the protocol officer for a foreign minister and just going into all these details of their visit and we became friends with multiple foreign ministers or, or foreign um, protocol officers and people who work in the embassies and consulates, especially in the New York area. And uh, it was just it was a lot of fun, just an, an incredible amount of work. But the payoff at the end of the day of getting getting folks in and out of the airports was totally worth it. And uh, I, I look back on my time in New York with a lot of fondness. That was definitely uh, some of my favorite times in D.S. Yeah, I was a bit envious of you guys uh, seeing you out there uh, doing what you did. Uh, so, for for the listeners' knowledge, not every every office, every field office has a PL rep, but not everyone has someone assigned to the airport. You guys were the United Nations is there. You know, it's a big city. A lot of people come through New York. Um, I was PL in Houston, and but we had very little. We had I think we had the Turkish consulate, Chinese consulate, a couple others, and we really didn't have a lot of. Uh, a lot of work to do. I actually did, I did PL there and I did PL in San Diego when I got here and it was even smaller. Um, mm-hmm. so, so you had, you know, again, New York field office coming through with the best jobs and the most fun. And New York, and New York does, we do have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder and it, it's, it's a friendly competition. You know, the field offices, NIFO, uh, New York field office, uh, you know, we always abbreviate everything in the government, but NIFO, we always had this chip on our shoulder. We, we do the best cram. We do the best PL. We do the best everything. And obviously it's all fun and games. It's ne- there's no, I mean, it has no bearing on, on anything other than just 
good old fashioned ribbing between agents and stuff. And, you know, you talk to new agents and you're like, where'd you do your field office? And they're like, Houston field office. And you're like, I was NIFO, man. Come on. You know, you're nobody, but it's all fun. It's all fun ribbing. And, uh, but I will say that NIFO definitely, when you're looking at the broad range of experience, there's, you can't beat NIFO. You're going to get, you're going to get a really good mixture of criminal experience, uh, protection details, uh, liaison stuff. And then, you know, going out on trips, it's the big mix there. Whereas if you go to Washington, Washington tends to lean way more towards protection because just where you're at. Now, most of the agents there are constantly getting pulled into protection details and things. If you go to LA, you're going to be doing, you know, 80% cram and 20% protection. If you go to Houston, you're going to be doing 90% cram and 10% protection. It really depends on where you go. And even though you can kind of try to pick where you go, you don't, always get your first choice. You don't always get your second choice. And in some cases you don't even get your top five choices. So, uh, but what I will say to people who are thinking about this job, if you don't get your top choice, don't sweat it. You're not I'm going to Houston or going to LA or going to Seattle is not going to change. You make the best of it. You go in there and you seek out the opportunities that are available to you there. It's not going to change your future outlook on the job. Me being at NIFO had no bearing on my future assignments other than, you know, the people I met and the things I did. It's the the folks from Houston have the same ability to jump out of Houston and go to great assignments beyond that. So uh, don't sweat your, especially the LSPEC folks, the folks who are kind of forced to go where they go the first couple of years. Don't sweat it. Make the best of it. And you, uh, you'll come out of it shining as long as you go out and you go out with the right attitude. Yeah, every, I think every field office, it's, it's up to the agent to make their opp- opportunities, to create their own opportunities, and hopefully leadership supports that. I, I had, you know, Houston was great. I had, I had, it was, it was really decent crim, but, you know, I was able to do a little bit of everything. I could volunteer to go to high threat protection. I could volunteer to go on secretary's detail. I could volunteer to go do a 30, 60, 90 day TDY traditional post. And, and every, I think most offices, most field offices offer that, but it's all about what you make, what you make of it. You know, um, but uh, yeah, I know, you know, people are going to listen to this podcast. You're going to start seeing the, uh, what was it? The first, when you're in BSAC and you start selecting so oh, a lot yeah. of number one NIFOs, man. And, oh, and I've had a few, I've had a, I've had a few uh, people on the podcast that were NIFO and it's, it's always the same thing. And, and I've actually, I've had people that write and say, you know, what about this field office? I kind of want to go here and I give them kind of my thoughts on the pros and cons mm-hmm. of each. And I, and I have people that, hey, man, I really want to be in the Washington field office. You think I can get it? I'm like, yes. You, you, you can, can have it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here's Put Washington number one and put like Houston, San Francisco, all these smaller offices next, and you're going to get Washington, man. Uh, Absolutely. So not a foolproof plan, but a, but a good, not a bad strategy either. And um, it's funny. I don't think, a, uh, well, NIFO was my first choice, but I was married at the time, and it wasn't. It wasn't her first choice. And, uh, and I don't think I, 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 you know, like I did with all my bidding process, I always discuss it with family first and, and I ranked it according to what the family decided on. And I actually, I think I put NIFO number two, but deep down I knew number one wasn't going to happen anyway. So we got NIFO and I was, I was very happy. I was, I love New York. You know, uh, I have this super hick accent and grew up in North Carolina and. Oh, they love uh, it there. But they love it. They absolutely love it. It was weird. It it was, I I just feel this connection to New York. I still feel like New York is kind of my second home. 
Uh, every time I go back to New York, I go back to the bars I used to go to and the restaurants I used to go to and I see the people I used to see and it's it's like a little mini reunion every unga that I get to go back, not just with the DS agents, but the, the people of New York. And, and uh, I love it. I, I, it's, a, it's a special city for sure. There's no, there's no city in the world like it. I'm not saying it's the best city in the world, but it's definitely one of the best. Yeah, to see it from your eyes as an agent there and doing some of the things you got to do. Like my wife's been in New York. She's like, I'm not, I'm not such a fan. I was like, ah, you go to tourists, it's a lot different. You know, even I, who wasn't assigned there, you know, I've been seven or eight times, most times, actually, of eight, seven of them were as a DS agent. You have downtime, and you meet with the guys and girls of DS, and you get to see things and do things, and you see a lot more than the average tourist does. And I, I think it's a, it's a great, you know, great, uh, a great spot. Now you went, uh, you went the we were in the World Cup, so you went to the World Cup. Uh, a lot of folks may or may not know that that DS provides security for the athletes at the World Cup and and uh, the Olympics and a few other events. Did you go there out of NIFO? I did. Yeah, I was a NIFO agent, and uh, and fortunately, my great supervisor there, despite how much work we were doing at the airports, uh, I said, "Man, I'd really like to go to this World Cup," and he said fine, you're going, you know, he put me down and, and I got to go. And it, it for me was my first kind of taste of overseas liaison work with foreign police and foreign governments. Uh, other, you know, in New York, I'd worked with a lot of foreign governments, obviously, but they were people who were based in New York. They were um, folks who were diplomats from their country living in New York. They were basically New Yorkers at this point. You know, they were used to the New York lifestyle. This was my first taste of actually dealing with police who were based and living in other countries. And I, I went to the World Cup 2012, which was in South Africa. I was there as an advance agent. And uh, so your job as an advance agent is uh, you go out to the various venues where the team is going, um, whether it be a practice facility or whether it be the big stadium where they're going to have the games uh, or a restaurant that they're planning a, a team dinner. You go ahead of the, the rest of the group and you advance the site. You look at where, you know, how safe is this site? Can we get them in and out safely? Where do we, where are we going to drop our people off? Where's the access to the locker rooms? Where are the bathrooms? Where is, you know, the, the safe zones? Uh, where are my police located? Things like that. And, uh, you know, they teach you well in BSAC. You learn these things all during your special agent training. You learn how to advance sites. Uh, and they do an extremely good job. Uh, DS has the best instructors of, of any law enforcement agency. Hands down. I'll put us, I'll put our guys up against anybody when it comes to train, you know, the folks that we have training us in BSAC from the firearms instructors to the driving instructors to the PRS instructors, hands down the best you're going to get. These are all professionals and they know their stuff. And I felt I was ready. You know, like I got there and I knew what I was doing. And then, but what I wasn't ready for, the surprising part of being at the World Cup was I wasn't ready for the differing attitudes that police have towards um their jobs essentially in other countries. And I'll say this, the South Africans, the police that were in, that were integrated with our team, with, with the world cup team directly integrated. These were all what are called special task force guys. These are like the SWAT team guys of the South African police service saps, we call them. Uh, and these guys were unbelievably squared away, top notch, um, I mean, you watch their training. If you want to watch some entertaining stuff, go on to YouTube and search, SAPS uh, special task force training videos or special task force assault videos or something like that. 
they're no joke. They're legit, like uh, really good SWAT operators. They get the training and the experience right up there with any of your top SWAT teams in the U.S. And they were phenomenal. But what we did find is some of the venues we went to, the police who were put in charge of the venue were usually these very um, experienced. I, I don't know if the word experience is right. Um, they've been on the job for a long time and they were given the, the site of the manager, the security manager of a, of a stadium because they'd been on the job for a long time, not because they were the best at what they did. And we would approach these guys and, and uh, coming from DS, we're fortunately, we, we get to hear threat information that we can't share with everyone. And, and, you know, part of being overseas is you, you become, uh, you know, we all have top secret clearances and you get threat information, you hear about things that you can't share for various reasons for, you know, because of the classification of the information. And, um, and so you, you may know about vague threats that you can't share. And, and the threats are vague. You get, you were overseas and you hear threats come in all the time and they're very vague threats against the U.S. And they'll be against the U.S. government or against U.S. or they may be even vaguer than that. They may just say, we're going to attack someplace sometime, some day, and you'll never know. And it, it's just as simple as that. And you get a lot of that overseas. You, you get a lot of threat reporting, and it doesn't have a lot of credence to it. But as DS agents, one of our jobs is we every time we hear about something, we always think about the what-ifs. Like if you go and advance a site that you've never seen before, and it's next to a river, as a DS agent, we always look at the river and go, well, what if bad guys drove up on boats and tried to assault us from the river or tried to kidnap our, our principal from the river? What would we do? We play these what ifs in our heads. Most DS agents do it every time they advance a site. They look at everything and they go, well, what if this happened? What if they attacked this way? What if they came in this way? Well, if, if you and I as DS agents were on a site together and I were to go, hey, Cody, what if these guys rolled up on a boat and, and tried to assault us? You would play along. You would be like, yeah, we would, you know, we'd probably pull our protectee to a safe space and, and you'll assess the situation or whatever your response would be. And there's no wrong answer. You're just playing the what if game. But I found out being overseas, a lot of times when you played a what if game, the response would be, I would say, hey, guys, you know, we'd have this meeting with the police and I'd be like, hey, what if this happened? And I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I wouldn't reveal any information that was secret or anything, but I would just play the what if game and go, what if the bad guys decided to attack in a crazy, unorthodox fashion like this? And the police's response overseas, which surprised me, was that'll never happen. That's a silly question. Let's move on. Mm. And I was like, mm, well, OK, well, let's just play a game and say, what if? And they're like, no, you're asking a stupid question. Let's just move on to the next question. So obviously my ploy of playing the what if game to try to like figure out are these guys prepared for any type of crazy attack was useless and and it's no fault of theirs it's not that these guys are just not good at their job it's just that they're not trained in the same way we're trained we're always trained to kind of expect the unexpected and and always look at like what's the craziest way you could uh, attack us in a scenario what's our weak spot what would you go after if you were a bad guy and their training is a lot different their training is more like what way of they always attacked us and we will address that way um and then if another attack comes in it it might you know if it's from a crazy angle they they might not be prepared for it and it really opened my eyes to like the fact that we are very well trained as ds agents we we get top of the line training and we think about things differently than the rest of the world does and it prepared me a lot for future assignments as an arso when I approach my police counterparts, because I realize 
not everybody is as fortunate as we are to have the money and the expertise and the and the professional background to prepare us for the things that we we tend to be prepared for as DS agents. And it's not because they're not smart or they're not prepared or they're not equipped. It's just because that's just it's never it's never been a thing. If they don't know it's a thing, they don't know it's a thing, and they can't prepare for it. Um, so the World Cup was great for that. Like it really opened my eyes to to other countries in in South Africa. I ended up doing a tour there and loved it. I loved the South African police. They helped us a lot on a lot of cases. And, uh, but it, it made me almost feel bad because I was like, man, you know, I wonder how many terrorist attacks in the world have happened because the police just, they'd never had the opportunity to learn about how to counteract these things. It's not that they were inept or, or bad at their jobs. It's just that you can't be bad at something that you don't know you're bad at. You, you just don't know. And, um, the World Cup. It was interesting. It was it was very very interesting. Um, and the U.S. team did fairly well. Lasted longer than they thought we would at that at that World Cup. So we stuck around a little bit longer. And then I had an opportunity afterwards to to travel with the DS agent in the country and and see a couple things that we didn't get to see during the World Cup. Because when you go to work these special events, World Cup, Olympics, things like that, you really are working. It's not fun and games. You're not just standing around watching World Cup matches. I did get to stand on the field during a World Cup match, which is a dream of most soccer fans. But at the time, I never thought of it as like, oh, this is awesome. I'm standing on the field during a World Cup match. I thought of it as, oh, I'm doing my job. And then it was weeks later that I'm looking at the photos and I was like, I was on the field during a World Cup match, which is something the world's richest people would pay millions of dollars to do. And I got to do it and got paid for it. So once again, shout out to DS for giving me that opportunity. Very few people. Uh in general, but especially in federal law enforcement could, could uh, ever do what you just did and what you just talked about. And I understand also the nuance of, and, 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 and relationships with the, the, the police and understanding that, you know, they <clears throat> do have a different background. They do have a different mindset and, 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 and the inter, the multicultural or inter, I'm going to say it, in, intercultural uh, understanding of, of uh, them and their backgrounds and, you know, is, is it plays an important role in how you communicate with them and, and, and understanding them. But I will say that the what if game is, is that's part of the job with mm-hmm. this. And I think, and, and when we say it, like if you said it to me, it, it, I, I, you're right. I wouldn't say why not because it's one that's part of the gig. But you also understand the probability of the risk might be light, but you still want to be prepared in case it's not, it, it does happen, right? Sure. Strange things that happen. Nobody would have thought that some people would have jacked, hijacked a, uh, an airplane in 2001 and, and flown into to the, the Twin Towers and everything else, right? But things happen. And, and it's not like you spend a lot of time on this what-if scenario. Would, they, would, would a commando team come in from a boat? Just, mm-hmm. What would we do? We would do this, this, and this. Boom, you're done. You got it, right? Uh, and and um, yeah, I think it's more of an exercise in like – it exercises your brain a little bit. It's more of an exercise in like, okay – I understand where the risk factors are within within my environment. I, I see where the risks are. There's water here. There's a risk in the water. Is it a high risk? No, probably not. They're not going to come in that way, but there's a risk there. And as long as you know and your fellow agents know that you see that risk, then if something does happen, you're not going to like, you know, we used to call it going into the black. You're not going to completely lock down and go like, oh, shit, what do I do now? I don't know what to do. Uh, you're going to know that the other agents have like, okay, they're coming from the water. This is, we never thought this would happen, but here it is. And we've already got our, a plan in our head. There's not going to be this, um, you know, you're not going to get into the OODA loop type thing where you don't know where to go and what to do. You're going to have an actual plan of action. 
DS, I mean, I'm sure people have said it on your podcast before. We all, we often joke about DS means do something. Um, never find yourself in a situation where you're just standing there with your hands in your pocket trying to figure out what to do next. Just do something. Fill it. Find the hole and fill it. And do your job. Uh, and if you do that in your entire career, I guarantee you people will speak fondly of you in the, in the agency here. Yeah. No. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, cool, man. So what was next? It looks like you bid out of, of uh, New York and you went overseas. I did. Yeah, I got my first overseas tour, which was ARSO, uh, Assistant Regional Security Officer in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, and, and Addis Ababa was a very, very interesting place. Uh, first tour, obviously going overseas, uh, people told me, Hey, Otis is Africa light. They called it, you know, it's like, Hey, it's a great post. It's Africa light. And then I got there and realized that it is very much Africa. It's, uh, abject poverty. I mean, uh, Ethiopia is one of the most poverty stricken places on the planet and it's everywhere you go. It's in front of you. It's, it's very saddening. Uh, it, it's tough to see on a daily basis. It really does affect you on a personal level. You, you kind of have to, you, you have to wrap your head around it almost and, and go like, this is their reality. That the fact that most of these people are never going to see maybe even running water, no less like a nice car or, a, or, a, you know, go out to a really nice restaurant and get a steak. They're just trying to feed their families and, and, uh, it does wear you down. I, you, and, and you've worked in some rough places as well. And you know that like you, you really have to be careful uh, as a foreign service officer, which you are as a DS agent. You have to be careful about uh, understanding the, the plight that people are in around you and, and trying to separate yourself enough from it where it doesn't affect you on a emotional level to where um, – it's going to affect you in some way, but you, you've got to do your job and, and really try your best to help people where you can and within your role. But you, you find that some posts will dis- depress you. Essentially, you'll you'll be you'll be depressed. And and living in Ethiopia was tough. Uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It wasn't my favorite two or three years of my life, uh, and it had nothing to do with the people of Ethiopia. It had everything to do with just the environment and the and the environment that they lived in every day as well. And, and I look back on it and go, geez, I got to leave. And, these, and a lot of folks never get to leave this environment. This is their reality. This is their life. Uh, it, it, it was definitely tough. But having said that, I made some tremendous friends in Ethiopia. The work there was incredible. I, uh, I learned very, very quickly how to be an ARSO overseas in Ethiopia because I had, a, you know, I had hundreds of guards, a huge guard force there, and they were direct hires, meaning they worked directly for the embassy and the U.S. government. They weren't contract guards. Contract guards and direct hire guards, it's kind of two different animals. They both have their pluses and minuses. Contract guards tend to be a little bit easier to manage from an overall perspective just because you have a company who is in charge of hiring and firing and discipline and things like that. But direct hire guards also tend to get a higher quality of, of applicant because you pay more money and they get the benefits that come with being a U.S. Uh, employ- a US government employee. Uh, and we had a massive direct hire guard force in Ethiopia and I was put in charge of it pretty much right away. And I found that it's a lot of work, tons of work. Uh, you know, every day you're spending hours and hours a day doing very menial tasks that I didn't sign up for. You know, I, I got into federal law enforcement. I didn't think I would be spending three hours, uh, stamping timesheets, you know, or, or signing timesheets. And, and one thing I do tell DS agents who are coming into this thing as well is, is, as much glamour and fun and glitz as this job has, 
it's still a government job. It's still a law enforcement job. Get ready for some of the most mundane, boring tasks you'll ever do in your life. And managing the guard force is one of those things. Uh, and it was boring, but you know, I had opportunities to do crazy things. I mean, uh, while I was there, uh, the prime minister of Ethiopia, he passed away suddenly. He, he went for a medical treatment in Brussels. Uh, his name was Melis uh, Zanawi. And he was the prime minister. He was the leader of the country. Uh, and he passed away. And suddenly you're in a country where there's a leadership void and they weren't prepared for it. The, the Ethiopians, you know, he wasn't, uh, as far as we knew, he wasn't poor health or anything. And uh, it, it kind of caught the Ethiopian government by surprise. And, uh, you know, their country is not like ours where there was a, a clear uh, transfer of power to, a, a you know, someone underneath them. It was it was there was a, a little bit of of uh, uncertainty of like what's going to happen next. Is this country going to go into chaos? What are we doing? And so obviously as being in the embassy, there was a lot of work. And not only are we the U.S. embassy there, but we, in the same facility, we also have the African Union ambassador. We have two ambassadors working in one building. So we have the U.S. ambassador to Ethiopia working on one side of the building. And we have the U.S. ambassador to the African Union working on the other side of the building. So it's almost like working in two embassies at once. And so he passes away and always dies. And, and now we have to deal with a state funeral. And we've got tons of Disney, uh, visiting dignitaries. We've got like 20 African presidents there. We've got uh, Susan Rice, who I, at the time was our U.S. U.N. ambassador. Uh, she was the official rep from the U.S. who came. And uh, I just remember like I almost felt sorry for the Ethiopians then because they were just overwhelmed. I mean, they suddenly went from uh, you know kind of a quiet existence to suddenly now we have to host one of the biggest state funerals that that you know you've seen when a, when a president or prime minister dies in office it's a massive undertaking and they pulled it off you know it was it wasn't without hiccups but they pulled it off in the end and and the one thing i remember about this funeral is you know we bring susan rice to the to the event and, and um the event goes on and it, it's in the main square mescal square right there in the middle of addis ababa Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people just packed into this square watching the funeral, you know, people mourning the loss of their prime minister. And towards the end of this thing, just the biggest rainstorm I had seen in Ethiopia. It, there's a rainy season in Ethiopia. It rains a lot there during the rainy season. And it rains heavy, but I have never seen a rainstorm like the one that hit at the end of this funeral. I, it was it was unreal. You couldn't see, you know, 10 feet in front of your face. And suddenly we're faced with this like. Well, now we have to get Susan Rice from this tent that we're under to her uh, car, which is a good ways away. You could, it's not like, you know, it's not like most cases where we can pull a car right up. The car is a good ways away. We've got to get her there. And an umbrella is almost useless when the rain is coming down that hard. So, uh, you know, it, it, nature threw a curveball at us at that. But like everything else, we, we adapted and we got her in the car and got her back, you know, back to her hotel room and everything. But it, it was an interesting event. But I will tell you the most interesting thing that happened to me when I was based in Addis Ababa had nothing to do with the job other than it brought me to this place. And, uh, we in, in Ethiopia, it's, it's not a secret anymore that it's been in the news that we had a drone base there. We were flying, the U S government was flying drones out of a place called Arbor Mitch in, in the Southern part of Ethiopia. Um, and part of the job with DS is you work with your military partners a lot. And, uh, in our office, one of the things, one of our goals was to, uh, because we had a small contingent of American servicemen based in Arbor Minch, 
it was a very small contingent and, and they were fairly safe. Ethiopia is a fairly safe country anyway. We weren't worried generally about their overall safety, but it's a high profile thing. They're flying um, drones and these weren't drones loaded with missiles and things. They were just surveillance drones, but they're essentially flying drones that are doing missions in other countries in the area, in the Horn of African area. And uh, so they're a target. You know, these guys could potentially be a target for bad guys who are looking to strike at the Americans in some way. So part of part of our mission in the embassy office was to go down to Arbor Minch and see what can we do to help supplement the military down there. Can we can we help the police? Typically, it was through helping the police. We would try to give them better cars, better radios, binoculars, you know, things that we could do to help the local police where if something were to ever happen. Hopefully, the police would have a better chance at responding because the police down there, they have nothing. You know, they they're a poor country. The police in America make nothing. You can imagine what a police officer in, in Arbor Minch, Ethiopia makes. They make nothing almost. They make scratch. Uh, and they don't have cars and they don't have proper weapons and they don't have proper radios. So we got to go to Arbor Minch. And uh, I went a couple times down there to this to this place where the servicemen were staying. And one of the interesting thing about this place, it was it was overrun with baboons, with with wild <laughs> baboons. And I remember the first time I got there. There was a nice mountain right above it, and, and I was like, I want to go hike that mountain. And one of the guys there said, well, you can't go hike it unless we send one of our guards with you. And he sends the guard with me who's got an AK-47 and a pocket full of rocks. And I was like, okay, I, I get the AK-47. You know, it's he's a guard, um, and it's not unusual in most African countries for the guards to carry AK-47s. But what's up with the pocket full of rocks? And he said the rocks are for the baboons because the baboons are very curious and they'll come up to you and they'll try to steal from you. And the rocks are to chase off the baboons. And I was like, okay, I get it. So I was like, well, what if the rocks don't work? And he didn't say anything, but I kind of assumed that's what the AK-47 was for. You know, that was the next step up. So I, I was there for a while. I would see baboons every now and then. No big deal. They're, they're just around. They kind of leave you alone. They, they maintain their distance. So one morning I, I, we get up and we're having breakfast and it's me and another DS agent who was my deputy RSO there at the time. We're sitting at the breakfast table and I, I'm trying to set the scene. Like I was sitting kind of at the six o'clock position on the table and, and he was sitting kind of at the nine o'clock position kind of to my left. And we were, and I just gone in and got a plate and like any true DS agent, my plate's got a little bit of eggs. Um, I think it had a biscuit and it had a lot of bacon on it, just tons of bacon because that's what we do. DS is all about bacon. Um, and I sat down at this table and while we're sitting there talking, you know, I, I notice a baboon jump over the wall about 30 or 40 feet behind my colleague and he sits down and he just he's looking like right at me. And the baboon starts rubbing his private parts quite vigorously, like really going at it. And of course, I'm a seven year old kid on the inside. So the first thing I did was like, hey, dude, turn around and look at what that baboon's doing. You know, look at him. He's rubbing his private parts. What I didn't realize at the time was I think this was all a setup. Like I think these baboons were working together because just as my my cohort turns around and looks at the baboon who's who's given this display, I just see this flash out of the corner of my eye and a massive baboon just lands, comes right over my shoulder and lands right on the table directly in front of me, right next to my plate and on the table in front of me. And you know, humans have a fight or flight instinct. Like uh, they always say, like your brain goes into this fight or flight. You're either going to run or you're going to fight. Well, apparently my brain got very, very confused in this moment and decided I was going to do both things at one time. So I immediately start backpedaling from the table, jumped up, you know, from my chair, knocked my chair over behind me very loudly. 
But at the same time, for some reason, my brain said, you got to fight this baboon. He's taking your bacon. He's about to take your bacon, you know? And I instinctively just gave the baboon a quick jab, a short stroke right into the ribs, right into the baboon's ribs, like punched him with a close fist. And I, uh, as soon as I did, I was like, oh, you, you just fucked up. Like that was not the right response. That was inappropriate for the situation you're in. I backed up about three feet from the table, chairs like rattling around behind me. And I'm looking at this baboon, like, you know, hoping like, okay, this didn't register that I just attacked the baboon. Like he's going to leave me alone. The baboon looks at me, dead eye contact from, from where he was standing. While he's, while he's making eye contact, he just slowly reaches down into my plate, grabs the bacon out of my plate, shoves it in his mouth. And then he just slams both hands on the plate, flings the eggs and bacon all over the place, jumps off the table, runs off to the edge of the balcony and jumps off into the woods. Like just, just like fucks off into the day, you know, never, never to be seen again, just runs off. And, and I'm left standing there with my colleague. Like we're looking at each other, like, what in the hell just happened to us right now? We were just assaulted by like a, a you know, a, a, an attack, a baboon attack, essentially. They, they work well together. And, and he goes, did you just punch that baboon? And I said, yeah, I think I just punched a baboon. Like that was, you know, I, I swear to God, it wasn't a conscious reaction to it, but it, it happened. So, uh, you know, every time I, I chat with him now and then he, he reminds me of the time I, I punched a baboon in, in Ethiopia and, uh, and I look back on it and I was like, man, it's, you know, we were lucky of obviously, you know, baboons have killed people before. They're very strong animals, but it's just funny situations that you find yourself in, in this job that you never, ever thought that would be even possible. Like you can't even write a script like this, you know? Yeah. I'll repeat myself. Uh, no other federal law enforcement agency. Will you be caught <laughs> fighting with the baboon? And I had to mute myself there because I was laughing a good bit at the story. <laughs> Uh, you're a good storyteller, and you're also, uh, I don't know if you, you want me to bring this up, but you're a comedian. You do some stand-up comedy, so uh, do, that, yeah. that was that was, that was was awesome. Every DS agent has a hobby. Some some are uh, musicians, some are, are uh, good woodworkers, and uh, I just do stand-up comedy as a kind of a, of a side gig, and I never want to get paid for it. I never want to make a career out of it. I'm not that good. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy making people laugh, but I... Uh, Mad respect to the professional comics out there. You you do a job that I could never ever do on a full time basis, but uh, I sure do like playing like one every now and then. It's fun. I am a fan of comedy clubs. I tried to pre COVID uh, for my fortieth birthday. One of the three things I wanted to do on my birthday, I was spoiling myself. I never really celebrate my birthday, but forty was a big one. What was to go to a comedy club? But COVID shut down. Uh, and, and you know, San Diego, LA area, we have good comedy clubs, and um, uh, it, it just kind of you can just remove yourself from life and, and, and uh, come out with your, your cheeks and stomach hurting. Uh, We're glad you guys come out. You know, comic comedy is kind of a dying art. It seems it's gotten COVID really did a number on it, just like it did with the music industry. Uh, But it's coming back. You know, we had, we had a lot, I'm here in Charleston, South Carolina. Now we've got kind of a thriving comedy scene here. We just had some big, uh, you know, we were getting more and more big comics coming through and we just had a big Charleston comedy festival, which I was fortunate enough to get to take part in and, and tell some jokes and everything. And it's funny too, because people are like, man, you have these crazy stories from overseas. But you know what? The funny thing about comedy is I don't do any stand up comedy that has to do anything with my job. I don't want to, I don't want those worlds to mix per se. You know, I don't, I don't joke about my job. I don't joke about, uh, I don't really talk. I've never told the baboon story in a stand up bit. I've never, um, 
I never talk about obviously, you know, protectees or anything like that. I, I leave it all. I, the only thing that comes up in my comedy is other parts of my life, you know, my personal parts of my life that aren't work related. And I think the reason I do that is just because I like having that disconnect. Like I feel like comedy is my separation from DS and my separation from being an official representative of the U.S. government. It's more of like a, a fun thing that I do on the side, but I'm not, when I get on stage, I am nowhere near being Kevin Williams, the DS agent. I'm just Kevin Williams, the comedian who likes to make people laugh and make, you know, have people go home happy and stuff. Well, getting on stage and doing that takes guts. Uh, that's cool. You know, and I didn't know when, when you, I mean, you and I have known each other for probably 10 years or so, but when we would hang out in New York, you know, you would tell me stories about how you met, uh, what's that guy? Uh, one of these famous guys. I feel like you have several stories. You've met famous people at a party somehow. You ended up like on yeah. the rooftop. And uh and I remember thinking, like, well, one, you're you're fun to be around, but you're a funny dude. And then I realized later that you're a comic, <laughs> that you're, you're, you're a legit comedian. So I, I do have some buddies that just moved to, to Charleston. Well, one's from Charleston and one just moved there, and I'm gonna get you a couple fans to attend because uh, I'll connect you guys on uh, on Instagram or something. I have a I have a show, uh I don't know when this podcast will be out, but I have a show that's coming Monday. So uh if they want to come out, let me know. I'll get I'll get them some tickets. Yeah, good they're good people, so we'll do that. Awesome. Um, so what's next? You uh, you uh, you stayed overseas. It looks like I did. Yeah, I, I got lucky. Uh, you know, the thing with DS is, especially now, if you go out in your first tour, your chances of staying out for a second tour after that are pretty slim in the current environment. There, there's a lot of people who want to go overseas, and we have a lot of agents, and it's really tough to fill out these spots. But back then, twenty this was circa twenty twelve or so twenty no twenty fourteen. Uh, was lucky. You know, we had other opportunities. And because I had established myself as a good criminal investigator, um, I was able to jump into the ARSOI program, which stands for Assistant Regional Security Officer slash Investigator. And I was able to jump down to Johannesburg, which I had experience in South Africa with the, you know, with um, doing the World Cup and everything. So I was able to sell myself kind of like, hey, I've got experience there. I know what it's like. I'll be a good fit. And uh, Joburg is wild, man. It's a wild city. Uh, the crime, uh, in, in South Africa is notoriously bad. Um, and, and it's, it has no bearing on the general public that you deal with. They can't stand it. The most South Africans you, you meet are the best people in the world. And they just are very disgusted that their country is, is over, is, you know, overrun with criminals. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that their police are just woefully understaffed, under-equipped underprepared for, for the crime. And because there's a great wealth disparity there, you'll, you'll be, uh, you know, you'll be walking around and a Lamborghini will pass you and less than half a mile away. There's someone who is, you know, literally using the bathroom in a gutter in a township. Um, so there's, there's this great wealth disparity. And when you have folks who are living a very, very poor life and they see someone drive by in a Lamborghini, it, it obviously there's going to be this anger. There's going to be this pent up. It's human nature. You don't like to see people, who who you don't even have basic things and you see someone drive by who is being extravagant in what they have and, and once again i'm not knocking the guy in the lamborghini either he's not intentionally trying to like distance this person who has nothing as he drives by but it, it just it, it these human emotions come out in people and the result is a massive massive crime rate uh and and being the invet- the arsoi there you're tasked your main job is criminal investigations within the consular section. So people, passport fraud, visa fraud, um, things like uh, um, uh, folks who are 
trying to game the system. You know, folks who are making false identities to for the purpose of trying to get other people visas. That's where a lot of your attention goes to. But also a lot of your attention goes to American citizens who are in distress overseas. And, and, and in Johannesburg, a lot of times it was victims of crimes. Uh, and we had a lot of victims of crimes in the U.S., had a South African tie because there were a lot of gangs in South Africa who were doing phone scams and scamming people in the U.S. and we would end up getting involved in it because we were in South Africa where the where suspects were. But um, man, it was it was crazy. It was wild there. And but being an I was awesome. And and for prospective DS agents who are looking to get into this job, if you ever get a chance to be an error, so I do not hesitate to jump on that job. You're going to, not only will you learn more about CRIM than you've ever learned before criminal investigations, but you're also going to learn about managing your own program, which is going to be hella important when you become an RSO, when you become the uh, the top of, you know, an RSO shop, because as an RSOI, you, you essentially run your own budget. You have your, usually you have your own investigative assistant, which is a local hire. Uh, you have your own, sometimes you have your own American assistant as well, which is often a family member of another American working in the embassy. You have your own vehicles, you have your own uh, budget for computers and things like that. And you run your own budget. It, it's almost like a mini RSO shop within itself. And I learned a lot about managing budgets and requesting budgets and and, and managing people and things like that. I would, would highly recommend it for multiple reasons. Uh, but for me, Johannesburg, uh, like some of the best feeling I got there was our fugitive program. We had a really strong relationship with the police and, and we, we made it even stronger while we were there. And uh, they, anytime we had an American fugitive in Johannesburg, they would really try their best or in South Africa in general, they would try their best to capture them and return them to the U S whether they were an American who had fled to South Africa to flee crimes in, from that they committed in America, or whether it was a South African who had committed crimes in the U S and then fled back to South Africa. And we had a really interesting case when I was there where a uh, South African citizen had gone to California and was working there. I think he was an H-2B visa worker or an H-2A, I can't remember, but essentially he was a um, uh, an agricultural worker in California. And while he was there in California on the visa, he committed or, well, I can say committed because he was convicted. He committed some pretty atrocious crimes against children there in, in California. And when one of the children went to police finally and and revealed what was going on, and the police started investigating. He got wind that like, oh, their police are looking into this. He jumped on the first plane and, and flew back to Johannesburg and then disappeared. And he was gone for years. For years, the, the marshals had the warrant on this guy. He, was, he got warrants in California. He was entered. As uh, Interpol wanted, you know, worldwide wanted, and and uh, for years and years they're looking for this guy, and he's off the radar. He completely disappears into South Africa, and um, the marshals have a team. I, I'll give them credit. The marshals have a really good team whose only job is these cold warrants, and they they monitor a lot of things, social media, and and known associates, and things like that, and they try to keep track of these fugitives. And God bless them. They called me one day and said, "Hey." We don't have a track on this guy, but his sister is very, very ill. And, and, and according to social media, uh, she may pass away any day now. And we think he may show up to the funeral if she passes away. And I said, well, it's, you know, it's kind of vague information, but I'll, I'll pass it on to my counterparts. I passed it on to the South African police, really good uh, guys in their fugitive apprehension unit. Pass it to them. They said, cool, we'll look into it. I didn't expect anything of it. 
the guy, the marshal calls me back the next day and goes, hey, the sister passed away. And her funeral is in, uh, I think it was Port Elizabeth in, in South Africa. And it's going to be on this date. It's on social media. Her brother's posting it and all these other stuff. He's like, I'm pretty sure her other brother, our suspect, is going to be there. So I pat, once again, I pass this information to my South African counterparts. I have no authority to go arrest this guy. Overseas, we have no arrest authority, you know, on, on especially on foreign citizens and things like that. But he's entered Interpol wanted. South Africa is a, a member of the Interpol community. They contribute to it and everything, and they will honor our arrest on and extradition and things like that. So these guys go and set up at the girl's funeral. And uh, sure enough, the guy shows up and they arrest him in his suit at his sister's funeral, uh, bring him back to Johannesburg, put him in a jail. He quickly decides he does not want to spend a lot of time in a jail in South Africa because it's not a nice environment. It's a very, very rough place to be. And he quickly tells us, I would rather go to California and face my punishment than stay in this jail for another day. So he waives all of his extradition rights and everything. And he he jumps. We, we put him on a plane. I was fortunate enough to to be able to fly back with him and, and two other marshals, and we escorted him back to the U.S. And uh, he subsequently was convicted and, and convicted of a multi-year. He was given a multi-year sentence in a, in a California penitentiary. So I, I haven't checked on him in a while. I, I, sometimes I'll go back and look like, is he out yet? I'd, I'd like to see what kind of happened to the case because uh, it, it felt really good to get. This guy was obviously a bad dude. Like he, he had done some really atrocious things. And, and I unfortunately had the. Uh, you know, read the case file on him and, and what he had done. And I was just like, man, flying back with him and then turning him over to the marshals in Atlanta felt really good because uh, you knew then that at least the victims are going to get a little bit of solace in knowing that this guy couldn't have done what he did and then run away forever, that the U.S. government was still kind of looking out for their interest and looking and looking to actually punish someone who had done something really bad. Uh, so, I think that's the thing that sticks out in my mind the most about Joe Berg. But surprisingly, the other big thing that happened while I was there was, unfortunately, uh, Nelson Mandela passed away. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So uh, and when that happens, you know, Nelson Mandela, obviously a major figure in, in our lifetimes. Uh, some of the younger people who listen to this may, you know, they probably read about him in history books, but they just don't wrap their minds around how big of a figure he was when you and I were, especially in high school and things like that. And, and, he, and his passing away was major, massive world news. Uh, and it became the biggest state funeral, I think, in the history of, of state funerals. You know, South Africa said, we're going to get every world leader is going to come to this thing. And as you know, when we go to the UN General Assembly, we get, you know, a lot of world leaders, but we're not getting nearly as many as you're getting when Nelson Mandela passes away. And on top of that, South Africans just aren't used to a gathering of world leaders of this magnitude. and. Uh, of course, every country is scrambling to bring their own leaders in. The U.S. sent a massive group of people. We have uh, Obama's coming, obviously. President Obama's coming. He was the president at the time. We have three former presidents, Clinton, uh, Carter, and Bush, all coming as well, not to mention Hillary Clinton's coming as well, who was, uh, you know, former or she was secretary of state and, and, uh, and, and Clinton's wife, obviously Bill Clinton's wife. And so we've got to deal with all of these. We've, we've got these dignitaries coming in. And granted, when you're here in the U.S., Secret Service handles these. Secret Service does not have the capability of handling three former presidents and, and uh, a current standing president all overseas. They always lean on. You've been overseas. You've probably had presidential visits or Secret Service visits. Diplomatic security takes a lot of the a load off the Secret Service. We try to help those guys out as much as we can with smoothing things over. 
making introductions, getting on the right resources so they can do their protection overseas. We have the expertise overseas that the Secret Service doesn't typically have, the contacts, the expertise, the, uh, the ability to smooth things over. This was an absolute nightmare for us. With this many dignitaries coming to an event this big and the South Africans pretty much saying, you're on your own. You know, we'll, we'll get you into the venue, but we can't give you police. We can't give you escorts. We can't give you anything. You're on your own to get to this thing. Now, granted, for Obama, they did give us escorts, but for the rest of these folks, it was pretty much like, hey, you figure it out. You get them there. We'll let you come in and, and be a part of it, uh, And and uh, which would have been all well and good until my boss calls me and goes, hey, uh, you're going to kill me, but you're not going to be on. You're not going to be helping Clinton, Bush or Carter. You're assigned to the 26 congressmen who are coming, who are technically not official representations of the U.S. delegation, but they insist on being there. And uh, I said, whoa, that's a surprise. And, and uh, how do I protect 26 congressmen? How much help am I going to have? And he said, uh, we're going to give you like a, a junior foreign service officer from the consulate to jump in and, and be your sidekick. So no matter how much training you do in DS with PRS work, you're not prepared to protect 26 congressmen at once. They didn't come with any, any uh, you know, protection from the, from the Capitol Police or anything. It was all on me once they got there. I was given a bus, I was given one assistant, and I was given 26 congressmen. And essentially, they didn't even have invites to the event. They they were unofficially there. They wanted to be there. They wanted to honor, you know, the the life of of um, Mr. Mandela, but they weren't officially invited, so they weren't on the guest list. So there was a lot of scrambling. There was a lot of me pulling every string I ever had in South Africa with police and with government officials and everything else trying to make arrangements for these folks to get in safely, get to their hotel safely, get to the venue. I begged and pleaded and managed somehow to get the Secret Service to let my poor little bus into the very rear of their presidential motorcade as they went down to the venue. Um, and and then the whole way there, I'm screaming at this poor bus driver, the South African bus driver, to keep up with the motorcade because I knew if we lost the motorcade, we'd never get in. They wouldn't let us into the venue. And I'm yelling at this guy to get us there. We Somehow, DS, we always find a way to get it done. We, there, it's, it was a miracle. We get them there. We have no seats. We don't know where to even sit these people. And literally, as we're walking into the stadium, some girl comes up and goes, who are these people? And I said, it's 26 congressmen from the U.S., and they're obviously here for the funeral. And, and she said, give me 10 minutes. And she comes back, and she puts us in some suite that had nothing. There was no food, no water, anything, but it was a suite up in the top of the stadium. His funeral was so big, it was in a soccer stadium, by the way. It was one of their, their biggest soccer stadium. Um, puts us in a suite up in the top of the stadium. They have their seats. They can watch the funeral. They watch it, you know, get get to do some selfies and things like that at the, at the, uh, at the funeral. The same funeral where we had the crazy sign language guy that was, we found out later, was not actually doing sign language. Uh, which became quite a story when, you know, when Obama was speaking, but we pulled it off, got them in, got them back on the bus, got them back to their hotel, put them back on the plane. None the wiser, they were none the wiser of all the crazy things that went on in the background to get this done, you know, and that, and that's the thing with most of our protectees, you know, most of our dignitaries, they don't need to know these things. They don't need to know the steps we go through to keep them safe and to get them to and from their venues. But rest assured, DS agents are, are, are really working hard in the background to make things happen. And, and sometimes we 
pull off miracles that you would you look back on it and go man there's no way there's no way if that happened again i would be able to pull that off a second time no way but it happened yeah so many moving parts to any motorcade any detail and having 26 by yourself uh i imagine was a little bit to handle so in a country with a high crime rate and i'm trying to convince them you know we're driving from the airport to the venue and i'm standing up on the bus in front of 26 congressmen and i'm trying to give them a quick down and dirty security briefing and when someone comes to south africa or any other country you know as an rso you give them a security briefing you say hey these are the things to look out for and i'm giving them a quick down and dirty security briefing and i'm telling them on the way from the airport to the hotel look do not leave your hotel room don't walk outside and wander around let me know before you want to go anywhere we'll make arrangements you're not restricted to your hotel room but you've got to tell me these things before you go and they're half of them are on their phones they're not paying attention it's you know it's kind of what you expect from a from a crowd that uh you know is, is just, just got off of an 18-hour flight and the funny thing was is i'm like listen this is also a very dangerous place you can't don't cross the street look both ways because there's some really bad drivers here and somebody somebody up front asked like well is there a lot of bad accidents here and i said all the time there's bad accidents all the time and it was almost like serendipity as i finished saying that we stop in traffic and then uh we're sitting there for a while and we move a little bit and we move a little bit more and and people are starting to get antsy and they're like, we have dinner reservations at this place. And, and I was like, ah, it's traffic. There's probably an accident. Sure enough, we get up there and there's like a mangled minibus with obviously injured people laying on the street and, you know, possibly deceased people, really bad accident. And we drive by it on the bus and they're looking out the window at this thing as we drive by. And I almost felt like a little bit of uh, a little bit of like a vindication, like, OK, now they know I'm not just like blowing smoke. This is really a, a dangerous place to cross the street at. There's a lot of bad drivers here. You know, you got to be careful. Uh, but uh, I think that opened their eyes a little bit that, you know, the danger, the danger is not always just people trying to rob you. It can be something as simple as a speeding minibus or something. You know? Yeah, I think pretty common in, in some of these third world uh, countries. Uh, let, let me add, let me add a little context. The, the uh, congressmen uh, don't generally travel alone. They usually have aides and sometimes multiple aides. We call them strap hangers. Uh, I so I imagine was that the case for you? Then so it was you say twenty six, which is already yeah. a lot, but there's other people you're concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. But it, you know what? It was, the interesting thing of this because it wasn't, it was so quickly put together, and it was so um, it wasn't off the record to say off the record. It was it was not. They weren't on official travel. They weren't officially invited. They kind of came on their own. They put this group together among themselves, and they came on their own. So it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't unsanctioned by the U.S. government, but it was like it was kind of on their own. It was like a almost like a personal trip with an official function, and it, it was a unique beast. It, it was a rarity uh, among what we do. Usually, we have weeks and, and months of lead up time to a lot of these visits. They did have some strap hangers, but because of the quickness that this was put together and the fact that hotel rooms were hard to get and uh, transportation was hard to get, I want to say we had about three or four like staffers who were pretty much controlling the whole group. So it wasn't a massive, massive group for me to keep control of. I mean, 26 is massive enough, and especially when it's 26 uh, congressmen who, you know, are, are, they all have their own intentions and they want to do their own thing and they necessarily don't want to hang out with each other. Uh, it was, it kept me on my toes for three or four days. I was very, very glad to close the door and, and put them on the plane on the way out. And I will say this, the, the shiny moment of the whole Mandela thing, um, 
and I'm not I'm not a political guy. I'm, I'm very much like a middle of the road kind of political guy. I don't have any idols in politics. I don't don't get excited about politics. But I did get to spend about uh, my my uh, consul general there, uh, who who is a very well known DS guy who became a consul general. And now he's an ambassador overseas. Uh, he called me and said, "Hey, uh, I'm going to be. I get to meet Bill Clinton on the ramp at the airport. Would you like to come along and meet Bill Clinton?" And if somebody calls you and says, "Hey, would you like to come along and meet Bill Clinton?" I don't care who you are. I don't. You're going to say yes. You're, you're like, this is one. You know, he's a former president and he's one of the most famous people in the world. Of course, I'm going to go meet Bill Clinton. And uh, I got to spend 15, 20 minutes on the ramp at the airport with just me and my consul general and Bill Clinton and my consul general's son. And we were just sat. We just stood there and chatted while they fueled the plane and got it ready for for Mr. Clinton to you know fly off again. And uh, you know, I'm. Going into that, I didn't know what to expect. And everybody's always said like, oh, he's a charmer. You know, Bill Clinton's such a charmer. He, he's such a, a personable guy. And man, they were right. 15 minutes with this guy. He got on the plane and I felt like he was my best friend. I was like, man, Bill Clinton really likes me, dude. He, he was asking me questions about my, my background and we were making, you know, we were joking and we we're having a good time. And, and uh, I felt like the guy genuinely was interested in hearing like my story and what I do and everything. And uh, I was like, okay. And I got a picture with him on the, on the ramp, you know, at the airport and everything. And I was like, once again, as he flew off into the sunset, I was like, dude, you know, five, well, this is at the point I was like six years ago, I was arresting drunks at a NASCAR race in Concord, North Carolina with no idea where my life was headed. And, and now I just got to spend like 15 minutes just chit chatting with the president of the United States. It was our former president of the United States, you know, it was, it was incredible. And, and I've got my picture now with two former presidents. And, and uh, once again, it's just one of those things where you're like, this job is crazy. It's, it's unbelievable sometimes when you look back at your life and go, I'm a lucky dude, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I got, I, I actually had about five minutes to chat with Bill Clinton uh, when I was a young uh, Marine security guard in the uh, Bahamas of all places. And he has an AIDS foundation or something like that. And, and uh, I, back then, I especially wasn't into politics. And, and uh, president, a former president comes by, and it's Bill Clinton. Uh, and the same thing was, you know, this is a, a 21, 22-year-old Marine at the time, but you'd heard that he's charming. I had the same thing, like asking in-depth questions about my background and my family and where I'm from. And it's funny you said that because I saw this in my closet the other day, but I got my picture here right there. So for those <laughs> yeah, of you listening, I'm popping yeah. up a picture of me and Bill Clinton. That, that's a 20, 20, 20 two 23 year old Cody. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, that's cool, man. That's a cool, that's, that's, that's several awesome stories, uh, you know, of, of things that very few people get to do. Yeah. This job is great. I will. I mean, I'm not, I don't work for, uh, I don't work for recruiting, but I'm also, I'm, I'm always telling people, uh, you're not going to find a crazier job than, than being a DS fe, uh, special agent. It, it doesn't get any uh, more insane than the things you may do, uh, the things you may see, uh, it, it, just for that aspect alone. And now I, I've jumped over to the dark side. As I say, I'm now in 1811. I'm a GS uh, employee, general services employee, and, and I don't get to go and, and uh, live overseas like I used to. And sometimes I miss it. You know, I'm, I look back on these stories and I miss, I really do miss being a Foreign Service Special Agent. There's nothing like it in the world. HSI, sure, they have attaches overseas, temporary jobs. They do it for a couple of years. They come back. Secret Service has a few overseas. FBI has legats overseas. 
but nothing can match the experiences and the things you will do as a DS agent uh, if you if you happen to take the take the calling, you know. Yeah, man. So let's let's do a little sidebar here before we go to your next post. Uh, so and people have asked me this. So you're an 1811, you're a GS 1811 special agent, which is FBI, DEA, you name it, Secret Service, H, you know, ATF. They're all 1811s. DS is FS 2501s, and there are there are some 1811s. And I've had concerned people say, "Well, what's the? Am I not 1811? Is it not the same?" And, and so explain a little bit. One, you can tell them that it is the same, uh, but but how it's different and and how it kind of translate o- translates over, and why you are now designated as an eighteen eleven and not an FS twenty five hundred one anymore. Sure. So uh, first of all, I'll say they're the exact same thing. Your job, your job is the same. You have the same authorities as an eighteen eleven as you do a twenty five hundred one. Uh, you're, a, you're a special agent. Uh, and it's a weird thing because we find this, and, and you've probably done this multiple times in your career. I find myself having to explain when I was a 2501, especially, I found myself having to explain to my 1811 colleagues, FBI colleagues, uh, that we are exactly the same as you guys. We have the same arrest authorities. We, we are federal agents just like you are. We are federal. Uh, we have the authority to arrest. We have the authority to investigate crimes, things like that. Um, you know, obviously statutorily, there are some differences here and there, but the main difference between 2501 and 1811 is strictly foreign service versus general service. Foreign service, meaning every two to three years, you're picking up, you're going to a new assignment. General service, GS 1811, what they call it, FS 2501, your foreign service, you're moving around, GS 1811, you're assigned to one specific job and you're going to stay in that job for the rest of your career unless you decide to apply for another 1811 job or, or something like that. That's really the only difference. And why do we have 1811s? It's, it's because of continuity, essentially. When you go to, especially, you know, every field office is, has a ton of 2501s. New York field office, lots and lots of 2501s for diplomatic security. They're all special agents. A handful of 1811s. The 1811s that are there are typically supervisors or they um, are specialized in crim investigations, criminal investigations. And the reason you keep your reason DS ha- has these 1811 positions is strictly continuity to keep the office running. Because we have people rotating in and out so often. If you didn't have someone who stays in an office and who knows who to call if you need this or what to do if you need this. You run into this situation that we sometimes run into overseas where you're reinventing the wheel every time you get a new cadre of people in. And uh, the way DS prevents that and the way that we get more done is by creating these 1811 positions within field offices and and regional offices, what we call RACs, um, in order to keep this continuity going. So I'm now at at some point, uh, and I was was a 2501 for most of my career, 20... Eight or 2019, uh, there was an opening for an 1811 in Charleston. I had previously served in Charleston. I can I can talk about that in a second, but I previously ter- served in Charleston. I had no ambition to jump out of the Foreign Service. Zero. I love the Foreign Service. I love what I was doing. I love the post I was at when that opening came out. But because my, my parents are a little uh, older and they live in North Carolina, it's close proximity. Uh, I knew what I was getting into in Charleston. I knew what I was going into. I was like, you know what? I've done the foreign service thing. I've done a lot. I've done and seen everything that uh, I thought that I might could see. Obviously, you never know what you're going to get into. But 
uh, I was like, you know what? Why not? I'll give it a try. I'll try out for it. I'll, I'll put my name in the hat. Very uh, highly contested position. A lot of people wanted to come to Charleston. It's a great city. Why not? Uh, and and somehow I, I scored it and, and ended up here. But, you know, I talk a lot, obviously, but to, to make a long story short, the difference between 1811 and 2501, the only difference is 1811, you stay put, 2501, get ready to pack your bags. You know, you're going to two to three years and you're out of there again. And that's that's pretty much it. There are some nuances. There are differences, minor differences in the retirement plan, minor differences in in, uh, you know, various aspects of the job. But overall, the main difference is 1811, you're going to stay put in one place. I will say to folks who are considering DS, if your goal is 1811, don't do it. Don't don't go into DS going, I'll, I'll be 2501 just as long enough as it takes for an 1811 job to open up and jump over to it. That's not the way to go. If you want to be an 1811, if you want to stay put for your entire career in one place, go to another agency, go to HSI, go to, you know, go to uh, ATF or DEA or, or whatever your particular flavor is, because A, the 1811 jobs are rare in DS. They're not very frequently opened up. And B, they're very, very highly sought after. You know, a lot of 2501s and they're internal only. A lot of 2501s like, uh, you know, want to jump over 1811 jobs. Uh, if you're getting into this job with the intent of staying put, I wouldn't do that. I, I would go somewhere else. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to discourage people from the job, obviously, but uh, it's just a reality of things. Your, your chances of coming into this job with the dead intent of becoming an 1811 uh, are pretty rare. I wouldn't. I wouldn't take that risk if I were a young guy jumping into this career. Yeah, good. Very uh, robust, uh, kind of comprehensive look at the differences there. So let's do this. You, you uh, well, you're in Charleston now, and mm -hmm. you were in Charleston. So your next assignment after Johannesburg was Charleston. So we kind of combine those together in the interest of time, um, sure. only because I have obligations a little later. But we still got we still got a good bit of time. But I want to make sure we catch everything. But why Charleston? Tell me, uh, tell us, uh, I think I know why. I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember why, but I don't want to get it wrong because I've done that before. Tell me why, why Charleston? What's in Charleston that, that uh, requires a DS special agent to be there? Yeah, so we, it's, it's simple. We have a passport center here. We have what's called a Charleston Passport Center. And uh, it's, it's a unique kind of passport. I wouldn't say unique. It's, it's a rare passport center in that it, there's no, you can't walk in there and apply for a passport. Uh, we have no public facing uh, type of uh, facility there. It's all uh, passport applications that are sent from other places in the country, and it's massive. It's the second biggest passport center. The National Passport Center is the other one that's that's massive, and then um, the other ones come here. So we get a, we get just you know thousands and thousands of passport applications a year pass through Charleston, and with passport applications comes fraud. You get passport fraud. You get visa fraud. Uh, so having a DS office based here in Charleston, we cover the entire state of South Carolina from here. So if, if Joe Blow applies for a passport in Greenville, South Carolina, which is over close to Georgia, uh, and he uses a false identity, we will investigate it here in Charleston. Um, so essentially the reason we have, the reason we're here is because, because we have a passport center here. That's, that's the bottom line. Uh, you would you wouldn't think of Charleston as being a hotspot of, of fraud or anything, but, in hindsight, it's a perfect place to have special agents because not only do we have the passport fraud that passes through the center, but we also have a city called Myrtle Beach, which is about two hours away from here. And Myrtle Beach is just uh, – it's a hotbed for visa fraud as well. Myrtle Beach is a tourist town. 
it's it's not a big city by normal standards, but during the summer from from mid-April until September, it's a massive city. It's and it's full of tourists. And so what you find out in any city like this, uh, Daytona Beach, uh, Myrtle Beach, places like that, what you find out is that the um, the there's a lot of fraud when it comes to foreign labor. So people who come on visas to work, they get taken advantage of. We see that a lot in Myrtle Beach. And, and one of the things that we're working here now in Charleston is a, a massive visa fraud case. And it was in the news last year. It's not it, it, it is a still a current investigation, but it's not a secret because we did make arrests and, and do a raid last June here. That's a massive visa fraud case. But essentially, it's taking advantage of foreign workers and foreign visas. Uh, and and uh, place like Myrtle Beach, you have hundreds of thousands of visitors on a daily basis, and you have to cater to those visitors. You have to have people to clean hotel rooms. You have to have people to serve food and drinks. You have to have people to work at hotel front desks. You, ha- you have to have lifeguards. All these positions, you can't staff them with a city of 30,000 people. You can't, you just can't do it. So you have to have a source of labor from somewhere else. And that source of labor in Myrtle Beach and other places like that is foreign labor. And DS is, that's our bread and butter. We investigate, you know, things of visa fraud uh, that has to do with foreign labor. And, and uh, so having the office here in Charleston has turned out to be we're, we're a busy office. We're, we're not lacking any work at all between the passport center and, and the fraud that goes on within the foreign labor practices, not only in Myrtle beach, but also in, in things like, uh, um, farms, migrant workers coming to work farms and, and, uh, in the, in the other aspects, in the other parts of South Carolina. So, uh, it, it, you know, when people say, Oh, you have a, you have a DS office and you have a diplomatic security office in Charleston, South Carolina, it's odd, but, when you really scratch the surface and look at what we do, what we investigate, and the, and the things we do in a field office, it makes total sense. Like suddenly, it's no longer a mystery as the one we're here. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to set that set that question up for you, just because you know our other DS other DS field offices are in major cities, uh, and then you have a few offshoots, you know. Uh, but uh, to, to add some clarity to that, you you are targeting. Uh, the sponsors, basically, of of these people, right? You're not immigration going round up right. these people. So uh, that's I just want to make sure we're clear on that. You're looking at people that were sponsoring, they were bringing them in, and you're getting these guys that are kind of involved in these potentially uh, schemes of multi million dollar schemes, or or uh, you know taking advantage of of uh, of individuals. Absolutely, yeah. That's not. I mean, obviously, uh, there are immigration laws, and and you know we we. We're not the immigration police. We're not HSI. We're not ICE. We're not looking to deport anybody. We're after folks who are taking advantage of other people. And one, you know, one of the great things that's come out of this case is I've worked a lot of cases in DS over the years. I've worked a lot of passport fraud cases. Excuse me, but this this case here in Myrtle Beach, uh, this massive visa fraud case that we've been working for a while. This is one of the rare instances where, as a DS agent. Uh, I've got to see the fruits of my work actually being reflected in uh, relief and and appreciation by the victims in the case. Uh, you know, when you're a cop, when I was a street cop, I would I would sometimes you get to see that it's it's rare, but sometimes you get to see you go to a you go to a scene and you actually get to help a victim and you see it in their eyes. You see the thankfulness that there's this person in a uniform there to to fix this situation, which is horrible, which is the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And 
you don't see it that much in DS. You work password fraud cases. Sure, you get some like identity theft and you get some one-off password fraud cases, but you rarely get these cases where you sit down with these victims and you talk to them and you hear their story about how their entire lives have been upended by this scheme. And, it, and essentially, it's a scheme by one or two or three people who are looking to make money and take advantage of others. And uh, but by the end of the conversation, when you tell them, "Look, I'm here for you. I'm here to try to bring some justice to this. I'm trying to try to arrest the the bad guys who did this to you, and hopefully bring you some peace." And knowing that in America we still have this system where, even though you may be here illegally in long in in the grand scheme of things, you may be here illegally. That doesn't mean you're no less of a victim. You were still victimized by these other people. And just because you were here illegally, we're not going to forget you. We're not going to just dismiss you as a nobody and send you back to your country. We're going to try to remedy this situation and show you that this is not the American way. It's not, this is not what we're, our country is based on. This is not what most businesses are doing. Uh, we're, we're here to show like, hey, we can, we can really help you if you, if you give us the opportunity. And, and it's rare. We've seen it a lot in this case where victims have, have cried and, and, and just shown genuine relief that we're trying to help them uh, and, and fix the situation. And it, it feels good. You know, at the end of the day, you're like, OK, I'm, I'm back to doing something that actually helps people. I'm back to like when I was a street cop, you know, or I'm actually feel like I'm making a difference in the community. And it, it's a bigger, broader community, but it's still a community nonetheless. Yeah, it's a form of uh, indentured servitude, right? Mm -hmm. You have uh, your your the, 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 there's a number of ways that these people can uh, these the the sponsors, for example, the criminals can can hold these victims accountable. And sometimes we investigated a case in, in Houston. And I was not the lead on it, but it was uh, involving a nanny. And these I think these are pretty common. Which which uh, a couple a Saudi Arabian couple brought over a Filipino nanny, um, and uh, they took her passport away and they paid her pennies. And she was very restricted, you know, in, in what she could do. And, uh, you know, you, you can't, you can't do that. Right. So, so um, we got wind of it and investigated. And, and so there's a number of ways that, uh, you know, DS invest, there's a number of nexus crimes that, that DS, uh, you know, investigates uh, related to visa fraud, which are usually a better cases. I find that visa fraud cases, I haven't worked many. I've been a part of, 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 of actually of a few, not too mm -hmm. many, uh, but I've never been the lead on a visa fraud that case that I can think of. Not a good one, at least. But those always seem to have a little more meat and a little more juice and a little more. Uh, uh, what, what are we looking at? The the time served if the people get prosecuted and get convicted, sure. you know. So, and ultimately, they're human trafficking. It's human trafficking as well. And you know, human trafficking is a big push for DS. Uh, and we were mentioned specifically in the in the White House's human trafficking report this year as being a major. Player diplomatic security was named as being a major player in the prosecution of human trafficking here in the United States, and we obviously make that a big focus. And in this case, in Myrtle Beach and other cases, it's human trafficking. It's all it is. You're you're making promises to people that they come here, and and then they find out that you're not fulfilling your end of the bargain as an employer. And not only that, you're taking advantage of the fact that now they're indebted to you, and they can't leave. They have to work for you. If they do leave, they're going to be grossly in debt in their own country for the rest of their lives, and they're never going to make the money back. And they feel like, well, I have no choice in my life right now except to work in this very poor situation uh, and try to make enough money to pay my debts in my own country. Uh, and then, and then maybe I can get lucky and and maybe marry an American, or I can 
go back to my home country and, and uh, have, um, you know, and have somewhat of a life without being in debt. Uh, it, it's human trafficking. Human trafficking is a big buzzword now. And it, it, but DS really has a major investigative role in human trafficking. And one thing you mentioned, like, yeah, there's not a lot of visa fraud cases. And, and when you do get them, I can tell you this, like DS agents don't like them. They're hard. They're very, very hard to sell. They're hard to sell to an assistant U.S. attorney. They're hard in the U.S. attorney knows they're going to be hard to sell to a jury. Uh, human trafficking part of it rings better. Like you hear human trafficking and you, and you get a lot more interest instantly in the case. But if you're talking about straight up visa fraud, because the visa laws are so complex and it's really hard to make it sound sexy and make it sound fun. Um, we have a hard time as DS agents selling a visa fraud case to our colleagues in the U.S. attorney's office. No fault of their own, uh, but it, it's hard for me to tell a U.S. attorney, hey, I want to convict this case. And by the way, it's going to take a lot of work on your part to now study and understand the visa laws so we can properly go to court and prosecute this case in front of a jury. Uh, most U.S. attorneys that obviously have a workload way through the roof, they're not going to be interested in that. They're going to be like, how about I just skip that and go to an easy case? You know, it's it's the sad reality of things, but it is the way it is. We understand it as DS agents. We, we get it. Yeah, that's one thing I haven't really talked about is declinations and how you might present. There could be so much crime committed and you can present it depending on the crime that's committed and and uh, a lot of other factors, they, they might decline to prosecute and then sure. you just close the case. And I think with the human trafficking component, when you say the word human trafficking, there's an emotional aspect that they might want to take it on as compassion, uh, but also looks better. I mean, these guys have jobs. They want to prosecute cases to them that matter. And human trafficking does matter. Not that visa uh, you know, fraud doesn't, but it's certainly a, a sexier uh, I hate to use that term, but but a case when it comes to, sure. to 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 U.S. attorneys deciding that they want to take these human trafficking cases, and for for people who are not cops or not federal law enforcement, even myself, prior to having any experience in this human trafficking, you know, people think, all right, well, it's someone coming over the border inside the trunk of a car, you know, and may have paid money to do it, and sure, that's one piece of it, right? You see that all the time on the news. This happens, but there's a lot of different ways that that people can be trafficked and and like we said held uh you know kind of held uh, as as a servant you know uh, mm -hmm. uh in uh in there's, home or there's two big there's two big like wings of it of course you know there's human smuggling which typically we associate with like coyotes in in in, in uh, mexico smuggling people across the border and that's usually like hey i want to get from this country to this country and i'll pay you money for it human trafficking is often misconstrued People often think of it as only sex trafficking. You know, you, you hear the words human trafficking. The first thing that pops up in a lot of people's minds are like people, uh, women who are trafficked, uh, women and children who are trafficked for sex to other countries, uh, which is obviously a big part of it. But that's not the biggest part of it. The biggest part of it is migrant workers who are who are promised twelve dollars an hour to pick cotton in South Carolina. And they come there and they get $8 an hour and they say, look, if you say anything, we'll just send you back to where you came from and you won't get anything. Uh, you know, that's human trafficking as well. Uh, and and we, we often forget that there's a we think of the sexy parts of things, but we forget there's a lot more going on than what than what we see in the media and what is the, you know, the, the cool thing. And speaking of the AUSA declinations, I'll, one of my favorite terms is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, and that's what AUSAs often look at. Like an AUSA is going to look at a case you present to them and they're going to go, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is it worth the work that we're going to put into this case 
to convict them of visa fraud when they're going to get six months in federal prison, where I've got another case sitting on my desk who is a simple drug smuggling case um, who may not have as many victims and it may not be as, you know, it, it may not be as sexy as this case, but they're going to get two years in prison for my same amount of work. Is it worth, the, is the juice worth the squeeze? And that's something as a, as an agent, any agent, DS, FBI, whoever, we often have to like, when we approach an AUSA, we have to tell them like, okay, here's what I got. And it's your decision whether or not you want to run with this or not. And, and you've done your job as an agent. And, and I tell, you know, new agents that come in and it's, if they haven't, don't have a lot of crime experience, they, they go to an AUSA with a case and it gets declined. I'm like, you cannot take that personally. It's, this case may be personal to you because you spent a lot of time investigating it, but you got to look at their perspective as well. They, they have to decide, is it worth the taxpayer's dollars to convict this case, to get them very, very minimal jail time, if that, for a case that's, you know, inconsequential to the general safety of the public? Yeah, right on, man. So let's go to, we kind of encompass both your Charles times there, but let's go to, to Phnom Penn. Speaking of human trafficking, because mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately that's a country that has a significant amount of it. I had a buddy uh, who was the HSI rep uh, in Vietnam, and he covered Southeast Asia, and uh, there were a lot of human trafficking in, in Phnom Penh. But you were the traditional ARSO role there, correct. right? Yep, correct. I was the ARSO there. We, had, I'll say this, hands down my favorite overseas tour. I, I love the Cambodian people. I love the office I worked in there. I had the best DS supervisor that I've had in the job. Uh, my colleagues in the office were just top notch, sharp guys. Uh, loved it. Loved every minute of my time in, in Phnom Penh. The Cambodian people were so welcoming. Uh, it just felt like it's weird. I, I, I say this, I even say this to people now, like if I were to retire right now and pick a place I would go, Cambodia is near the top of my list. The people there were so welcoming. The environment was so, so uh, good. It, it's a cheap place to live. That doesn't hurt. But ultimately, it just, I felt like home there. You know, you, you go places and you feel like I'm just a person living there. And then you go to other places and you feel like this is home. And Phnom Penh was one of those places where I felt like this is home. I felt, I felt very good there. Um, the work there also awesome. I, as you said, I was a traditional ARSO. I ran programs in the, in the uh, embassy. I ran the Guard Force program. Uh, I ran, uh, the, um, a couple of other programs there, you know, the, the, uh, we, we had, a, a obviously a guards that protected the ambassador. We, had a, a, we had the, uh, surveillance detection program, which looked for people who were watching our embassy, things like that. And I don't have a lot of sexy stories from Cambodia to, to tell. I was there for about a year and a half, uh, almost two years before I, I ended up coming back to Charleston and getting an 1811 job. But it still sticks out in my mind as one of my favorite places ever to have lived. I traveled a lot while I was there. Uh, I, I bought a motorcycle and rode my motorcycle everywhere I was there. Like I was in, in South Africa, I rode off-road motorcycles everywhere. I got to Phnom Penh, I rode an on-road motorcycle everywhere, and I loved, I loved every minute of it. Uh, but the office there in Phnom Penh as a whole, we had an ARSOI there who was, was awesome. I mean, he, he kicked ass every day. And speaking of the sex trafficking, that was his thing. Like he... Uh, we, there's some really good NGOs, non-government organizations there whose only job it is, these are former cops from like Australia and other places. And these guys literally just spend every day scouring like these 
these message boards and, and social media and they sit around at bars that are known for like human trafficking and underage sex and they just listen and they watch and observe and they gather evidence against people, Americans or other countries, you know, depending on who it is, but they, they gather evidence against people who are there for nefarious reasons, usually things like sex with underage, uh, underage people, which is obviously disgusting in, in the U.S. government does not take a, a very good uh, liking to defeat to our American citizens who come over there for that purpose. And there are American laws that specifically make it illegal for you to travel as an American citizen to another country with the intent of engaging in sexual acts with a minor, which is awesome. There's not many countries who go that far to go like, not only will we convict you for depraved stuff that you do here in our own country, but if you as an American citizen go to another country with the act with the intent of doing this depraved act, we will convict you in our country for that. And because of these laws, we, we have a lot of leeway to go after the folks who are doing these things in other countries. And the ARSOI there was, he was on top of it, man. He had great contacts. We had a great FSNI, our Foreign Service National Investigator, who, who worked for the, the ARSOI, uh, who just had good contacts in the community. And they were always out almost constantly they were catching these Americans who were there with the purpose of engaging in sex acts with minors. And they were catching them and getting the Cambodians to deport them back to the United States. And then they would get a surprise party in the United States who were there with warrants in hand to, you know, charge them with, uh, with soliciting sex overseas or going overseas with the purpose of uh, engaging in underage sex. And it was a lot of them. It wasn't just a handful. There was a lot. And it, it was sad to see how many, how often it happened. But it was also encouraging to see that he, you know, our ARSI program was was kicking ass and taking names, and and uh, you know, it it was even they were so good at their job that they, you know, the people were making social media posts against them, like trying to target them, and and they we had to deal with like threats against our FSNIs and against our ARSOI, and that sucks that our guys were getting threatened and getting directly called out and having their photos put on social media, but on the flip side of that. Hell yeah, because that means that they are scaring these dudes. Like these dudes that are going over there to have sex with children, I'm all for them being so scared that they take it upon themselves to try to threaten our guys. Go for it. Come after us because, you know, you come after us, it just puts more, more, uh, um, uh, it just makes us more apt to go after you and, and stop you from doing what you're doing. So uh, I really felt like my time in Addis Ababa, I mean, sorry, in, in uh, Phnom Penh was, was, uh, totally worthwhile and i got out of there i came to kim i came back to uh, charleston right before the pandemic essentially i was back in charleston like i mean i think maybe five months before the pandemic hit and then my guys in in Phnom Penh essentially then got locked down for a year so i imagine my last year there i was i was already extended i was going to be there a third year um and i imagine my last year there i would have been it would have been a totally different experience not to say it wouldn't have been good but it would have been a totally different experience because COVID, as you know, changed things for everybody. You know, changed changed the entire world, changed our jobs, changed the ways we the ways we do our jobs. It, it completely turned our, our world upside down. So I'm glad I got out when I did. But also a part of me, I really missed the place, and I, I wish I could have stayed my entire my entire tour there. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful part of the world. I mean, as I said, I was in Southeast Asia, Vietnam. I traveled to Cambodia, traveled to Phnom Penh, traveled to uh, Angkor Wat. 
Uh, did I say it right? Anchor Watt. Yeah. Um, and uh, just amazing. And the people are so friendly. I, I was in a, a like a little boutique hotel. I had a buddy who was taking a nap. I came down. There were some some young guys sitting around drinking a beer, eating what looked like to be jerky. And I, one of them spoke English, and I communicated with him. And he's like, you, do you want a beer? And I was like, hell yeah, I'll have a beer. And I sat there. I must have sat there for two, three hours just asking him about now I'm interested in this stuff. But I was asking him about the country and and they were asking me about America uh, and eating the, this beef jerky that you may have had mm-hmm. before too. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I had a really, really awesome time. It's a shame that there are these horrendous acts that are happening. Uh, but I suspect, you know, and I know my buddy from HSI was, was it bothered him, you know, to investigate these, these, these things. But he certainly felt like he was doing rewarding work. And, uh, and with the ARSOI combined effort and, and, and uh, you know, to, to, to add to that, the if, if an American is getting arrested, the ARSOI is facilitating that, right? Yep. So another Absolutely. plug for uh, how awesome uh, the job is in DS and, and the, the versatility it, you know, it, it has. Yeah, so. those, those guys there, uh, the, the I program is tremendous. And obviously we all work together and we'd often go out together and work the, work the cases with each other. But but the I there, that that whole office was great. It, it started with good leadership and, and you've probably seen that in a lot of your overseas posts. Uh, if you have a good RSO who supports his guys and, and really, uh, you know, encourages work, then it it happens. The work happens. And, and we had that there. We had kind of we, we would often sit around and go, we have uh, kind of the perfect mix here where we have really strong leadership, a very intelligent, very encouraging, uh, hard charging RSO. And then we've got very strong ARSOs running their programs. And then we've got a super smart ARSOI and, and working his program. It, it's kind of the perfect storm where that office was just putting out work and putting out good work consistently. Uh, and it's, it's one of those magic moments where you like, you're like, yeah, it'll never happen again in DS, but it's happened all over DS. You, you talk, uh, you've, you've interviewed a lot of guys on this podcast and probably every, every person who's done a podcast has said we had a perfect team in this post and, uh, and they're not wrong. It, it, it's all circumstantial and it's all, uh, it all depends on what, what your environment is. But I think DS, that's, that's another shout out to DS. We, we've just got that. Uh, we have that ability to put together these teams with, with different backgrounds and different personalities. And somehow it just turns into this like perfect conglomeration of, of weirdness that, that works great. Yeah. The team matters. And there's shared experiences, right? You've all done ungas. You've all been around the world and can bring, you know, and, and, your, and your life before DS can bring those, you know, into, into one location, uh, you know, and, 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 and make a really kind of versatile team, uh, you know, I think not to knock on other agencies, but if you're stuck in uh, Boston for 20 years, there's not much you can bring to a table uh, whenever you have guys you're competing against, uh, you know, that have been to four or five different countries and investigated multiple different crimes and things like that. Absolutely. So, well, cool, man. That was two hours. Uh, so that was a that was a lot of talking. I, uh, I that's the point. You going, man, I'll roll with it. Dude, you know? That is the so, point. You you, <laughs> you did a fantastic job. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, you're an awesome representative for DS. Uh, I'm glad you came on. And uh, some a lot of uh, unique uh, experiences you had that hadn't been told before. Everything from Airport PL to the World Cup uh, to. Uh, your experiences in 1811 now um, and, and the, the nuanced 
information uh, behind you know crimes and stuff like that that we investigated. We haven't had that on the podcast. I think this has been this has been awesome and it serves a lot of value. And I suspect you're going to be one of the top downloaded podcasts, my friend. I will keep you posted on that. But uh, if, if anything, just to make fun of my accent and, and uh, pull sound clips that uh, can be you know uh, uh, overlaid on on uh, TikTok videos or, or or what have you. Uh, no, I, I appreciate you having me on. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoy talking about DS. I I told you early on, like I'm a I'm a champion of DS. I think this is the greatest federal law enforcement agency, and I'm not just blowing smoke. I, I don't work for recruiting, and I, I never cared to work for recruiting, but I do my own recruiting on the side, and I tell people all the time, like, dude, you can't you can't beat this gig. And uh, I want to give a quick shout out Public Affairs for clearing me to come on here. I'm, I am a current agent, so uh, obviously, you know, they they have to be careful about. Uh, we don't want, we don't want to make DS look bad in any in any way, and and uh, I appreciate them giving me the opportunity to come on here and and speak and give my experiences to you, and and also a big shout out to you, Cody. I mean, you you've done the podcast is awesome, the the Facebook pages you've done, you know, kind of guiding young folks who are looking into DS as a career. You've you've made a I think you've done a tremendous service to you've been your own unofficial kind of recruiting for DS for a while, even though you're no longer, uh, you no longer get a paycheck from, from the big Eagle, as we call it, you know, you, the, the Eagle doesn't shit in your bank account, uh, for the crude way of saying it. Um, we, uh, you know, you're obviously still a big champion of DS and you try to steer people towards a career of service. And, and dude, we appreciate that. You're, you're, uh, you're well, you're highly spoken of among your DS colleagues and, and uh, you can be proud of that for sure. Well, I appreciate that, and I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, I DS uh, changed my life, you know, in, in a number of different ways, and the in the career I'm in now, and what I'm doing now, and and uh, you know, if 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 I didn't wasn't a part of DS, I wouldn't have you know my wife, my son, my daughter. Uh, so uh, it's it's been a part of my life, and and you know, it, it's it's uh it's it's something I enjoy doing this on the side, and if it helps, good. I I, I think you came on right around the time I came on. And there wasn't a lot of information on DS. Um, and so uh, this, people like yourself volunteering your time to come on and speak, uh, I hope will eventually get, uh, you know, traction to bring more people, more people excited about DS, understanding the job, learning what they're going into. And maybe it'll slow down attrition. Maybe it'll, it'll bring you the best candidates. I don't know, you know, but uh, I enjoy what I'm doing and, and uh, appreciate people like yourself coming on. Uh, and 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 uh, giving giving the good stuff, you know, the, in, the inside scoop. So uh, I appreciate you. You're a good man. You're a good friend. And uh, sit tight, real quick. I'm going to end this podcast, and uh, uh, we'll talk on the backside. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Bill. All right, Kevin Williams, everyone. Thank you, Kevin, for coming on the podcast. And what did I tell you? Kevin is a great storyteller. So easy as a podcast host to have someone with Kevin's communication skills. And I am very thankful that he came on. He is a good friend and I know he's highly respected within uh, the organization. Okay. Now's the time I tell you a little bit about how you can learn more about DS and other global security information. Keep in mind, I, I should say this at the end of both podcasts, but I am not currently involved. I'm not uh, a representative of the United States government in any way. Um, I am just providing information uh, and hopefully bringing you uh, valuable information and good guests to to uh, inform folks about the job. Um, and it's a great job, as you've heard us say many times, the best thing in federal law enforcement. So 
How can you learn more? At least from me, uh, I have several mediums in which you could find information. Number one is YouTube. Just YouTube, search my name, Cody Perron. I have 25 or so videos out there. And what those are are responses to questions that you have, right? So I have people that email me, uh, people that write on, uh, write me a, a message on Instagram or a number of different places, and I respond to those questions via video. Uh, it's everything about life in diplomatic security, uh, you know, about the job, anecdotal stories, leadership, you name it, and I respond. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's people are enjoying it, getting some value out of it. I, I continue to, to grow it. And so, you know, I'm thankful for, for the support. Uh, but go out and check out those that YouTube uh, channel and you can, uh, you know, find out plenty of information there. Uh, second is a Facebook group. If you're interested in becoming a DS special agent, you got to be interested. Uh, you got to fill out the questions. But if you are, go to the Facebook group. It's called Becoming a DSS Agent. It's the only one of its kind. It is a group of active duty special agents, former diplomatic special agents, uh, retired diplomatic special agents, and candidates interested candidates that post their questions we have group experts that reply and tell you the answer to your question uh, it's a really great medium it's a way to interact with active duty special agents and I think it serves a ton of value so if you're interested again fill out the questions uh, and I will allow you in the group and you know you can ask the questions and I would say go and read all of the questions that I've been asked because let me tell you, there's a lot and there's some great responses and great answers. And we have people from the highest levels in that group uh, that are watching, that are listening, and that sometimes chime in. And it's pretty awesome. So go check it out, Becoming a DSS Agent. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, I am off the X underscore Inc. I-N-C, off the X underscore Inc. And there I do a number of different things. One, I promote DS because I think it's a great organization. Uh, I talk about personal safety. I talk about world events, global security events, uh, high threat protection. You know, it's a passion of mine. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the camaraderie and the team and the guys uh, and girls that I worked with. And so I, I pushed that out there. So it's a little bit of everything. It's it's a mix and I think it's enjoyable and uh, I have a little following. And, you know, for those of you that do follow, uh, if you've ever responded to me, I, I most often respond back, especially in, in DMs and messages. Um, sometimes the... the uh, the comments get out of control and I can't keep up or someone has something negative to say and I try to avoid that. I try to add value where I can to avoid the negativity. But, you know, check it out uh, and I think you'll somehow, some way get some value. Whether it's if you want to be a DS special agent or you're interested in safety security advice or you're interested in world events and just want to see something interesting, I try to keep it that way. So check it out. Off the X underscore anchor. Uh, Wes, this podcast, go back and listen to some of the episodes. As if, if this is the first episode... I have several with DS special agents, and at the beginning I say, hey, you know, I'm going to have everyone on. Well, my biggest group of people I know are DS special agents, right? There's security engineering officers, there's security technical officers, there's diplomatic couriers, uh, there's high threat protection contractors and guys like that. But the biggest group I know is DS special agents because I was one of them, right? So I bring on more of those guests. I think it's a ton of value in those guests, but I do have some high threat protection uh, PSS, uh, personal security specialists that I served with in Iraq. Uh, that come on the show, that came on the show, and uh, great dudes. And so check them out. Check out all those pods. A ton of valuable information. DS is a group that is not very well known, and we're trying to get the word out uh, 
uh, about the the men and women uh, uh, that that do a fantastic job keeping our diplomats safe around the world and are putting some pretty uh, heavy situations uh, more often. Uh, well, let's say more often than not, but often. Uh, all right, all those are free, by the way. All those are free. Go get them. I get I, I, I get nothing out of it. I get I'm excited whenever you like it, right? So like and share and do all those things. I like that stuff. That's great. Uh, the only one that does cost is uh, my book. So I wrote a book. This is what started all this. This is the catalyst. Agents Unknown. It's available. It's Agents Unknown. Uh, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. It is available on Amazon. It's got the audio version on Audible. It's on iBooks, Barnes & Noble Online, Apple, uh, Apple Books. Uh, you can also buy directly from me on CodyParallon.com, and I'll send a little something extra. It ends up being about the same amount as, uh, as, as uh, if you buy it on Amazon. Uh, if you have Prime, it just doesn't get there as quick, right? It's not, it's not Prime. I can't, I'm not going to get you next day service. Uh, but if you want to check me out, C-O-D-Y-P-E-R-R-O-N.com. And I can get the book to you um, and, uh, and and throw in a little something extra on CodyParallon.com. So all this costs money, right? So I'm doing the podcast. I'm doing uh, a number of different things that that when you when you you know have a domain or a podcast production or the uh, podcast uh, platform, use it all. It costs money, and so uh, I don't ask for money. I'm never. I, I won't ask for money. But I, what I will say is that if you want to support. And I say this because people have asked. I never, I hadn't bring this up for over a year, but people have asked, "Hey, how can I contribute? What can I do?" Uh, well, because there are costs, um, uh, you know, there's things you can do, and you can buy a book. You can go to the website. You can buy some gear. I don't have a lot, but I do have some. As you might or might know, there's a, a, a well. We'll just leave it at that. Go and check out this hats, this t-shirts, this patches, stickers, this hoodies on CodyPerlin.com. Uh, and uh, finally, what I will ask is if you like this episode or this podcast, if it provides value to you, I humbly ask for you to hit the like button, share it, send me a note, say, Cody, keep it up. Uh, that keeps me motivated. It keeps me going. If you buy some apparel or something like that, that gives me a little money in the pocket to pay the domain costs, to pay the production costs. And, uh, you know, I'm just keeping it real. Just telling you, this is part of it. Uh, there are costs associated and I appreciate uh, all of you for, for, for supporting you and, and doing what you can. Uh, thanks again for all your support. As always, hit me up. Let me know how I can help. Info at CodyParon.com or you can DM me on my different mediums and I will get back to you. And that's all I got, folks. Thanks, y'all. Out. <laughs>